What is going on, everybody? Welcome to Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast. I'm Carlos Colazzo. As always, joined by Ben Badler. Today is August 31st, the last day of August, as we record this episode. Ben, what is going on, man? How you doing? I'm good. Everyone's getting claimed on waivers today, it seems like. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was a Every, bit odd. Everyone gets an angel. Yeah, Angels fans, I mean, what's the last time they've been to the playoffs? 2011? It feels like it's been a, quite a long time. 2014 yeah. might be the yeah. year. I think it was 14, right? With uh, yeah, because it's, it's been like almost 10 years now for Trout being I in think the playoffs. Ele- 2011 was Trout's first year with the Angels, right? I always get 11 and 14 mixed up, but it was 2014, the last year they went to the playoffs. They got swept in the American League Division Series. Since then, they have pretty much done. A whole lot of nothing, kind of middle of the division, bottom of the division. Um, it's funny that we start off with the Angels here in their waivers because I put up a tweet a few hours before we recorded this, like asking who the most disappointing teams in baseball are this year. I didn't even put the Angels in that post. The, the four teams that I included, and I think there was maybe a fifth that, that could have been in there were... So the teams that I actually put in the tweet were the Cardinals the Mets, the Yankees, and the Padres. And the fifth team I considered was the White Sox. I don't even think this season is really disappointing for the Angels because I think a lot of it, I mean, it is disappointing in the sense that you want to see Trout and Otani in the playoffs, but I don't know what the expectations were for the Angels entering the year from people outside of the organization. I'm curious, number one, if you think the Angels fit into this conversation, and, and two, which of those teams that I mentioned do you think has had the most disappointing season? Because I think there are a few interesting ways you could take that. Yeah, I think it's been a disappointing season. I think it's been a painful experience this year for Angels fans. And like you said, anybody else who wants to actually see Otani in a uh, meaningful game outside of the World Baseball Classic. So that's been, uh, I'm sure, super disappointing for Angels fans to watch. But yeah, I don't think it compares as far as expectations wise to those other clubs you mentioned who I mean you could pick and I think we did including myself in many cases to have you know whether that's the Padres the Mets the Yankees uh, or the Cardinals in first place in the division or in their respective divisions coming into the season to to see those teams all being where they are right now is uh, I think definitely bigger disappointments I mean in the Yankees case not making excuses for them, but it is a much tougher division mm-hmm. than those other clubs. Um, and whereas it looks like the Mets and Padres, who both spent a gazillion dollars uh, <laughs> on on their team in the offseason, uh, and in many cases, especially in the Padres' case, trade away a lot of prospects to make that yeah. happen, although their farm system is still pretty strong, at least at the top right now. Um I think they've got to be the biggest disappointments because those teams are looking at, I mean, potential top five overall picks. Although the Mets case is a little unusual because they have to, what, get a top six overall pick or they fall (laughs) because of of where they are. I mean, it's, yeah, either way, it's, I I would say those two teams are are the biggest disappointments for me. I actually thought the Cardinals had some risk coming into the season. Um so I, I didn't think they were going to be in as bad as they were, obviously, but that's... Yeah, what's what's interesting, and I, I will say, so far we've got 1,300 votes on this poll. 
the strong leaders are the Mets and the Padres. The Mets have 41%. The Padres have 35% of the vote. Neither the Yankees or Cardinals are over 15%. So pretty clear favorites there between those two teams. And I think I would probably choose one of them. The, the reason I lean towards the Mets is just because of the payroll, just how much was invested in this team, like how exciting that offseason was for them. The fact that the fact that the Mets not only aren't in contention, but are fighting to finish fourth place right now in the National League East. I mean, they're currently fifth place in the division behind the Nationals, which if you entered the year and said that in March, that the Mets at the end of August were going to be the last place team in that division, like it's kind of comical to think of how it could unfold. I, I think the one you're talking about, not trying to give an excuse, but talking about the Yankees being in a difficult division, the one thing for the Padres that I kind of look to is they've actually scored a decent amount of runs. Like they've probably been the most unlucky team in baseball, just in terms of one run games. Um, if you look at their Pythagorean win loss record, which is basically just like run scored versus runs allowed. I think the Padres would be a playoff team. They're top 12. The Mets are still 20. And so if I had to pick one, I think I'd lean towards the Mets because of that. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to think through these teams. I, the other thing I wanted to mention too is the Cardinals. This is going to be their worst season potentially since 1990, which is before I was born. So I think, <laughs> I, I think for the Cardinals, like they haven't finished lower. They finished fourth in 2008. They finished fourth in 1999. Fourth in 1997 fourth in 1995 outside of that they've been third or better every year more often than not winning the division they've basically basically been in the playoffs every year throughout this century and they're going to have their highest draft pick in multiple decades this year just given the season so i think like the fact that the cardinals are bad it's almost like never happened for me in my life the, the fact that they're so consistently good is really impressive and maybe people kind of take for granted that the Cardinals just don't have seasons like this. They're one of these teams that are just, you, you, they just never put together a bad team and now they have it. I think I expected them to be in contention for this division. So they're surprisingly bad, but I, I think they've probably given their, their fan base as much good grace and winning seasons in the past that you can deal with a one down year. Yeah. It'll be nice to at least see them see a team like that, picking a top potential mm -hmm. five overall pick in the draft joining the you know the usual suspects in that crew <laughs> yeah let me see actually i don't know the last time they've even had a top 10 pick so it is going to be odd just having them pick there in that range i'll pull it up really quick um yeah but yeah the other teams a, it's a great year to have a top five or we'll see how the lottery shakes out but like you know yeah, not, no, not looking like the super strongest draft at the top this year so this is incredible this is like dodgers as we talk about the dodgers picking at the back and having a great farm system the highest the cardinals have picked you have to go all the way back to 1998 to find a top 10 pick for them they picked number five overall in 1998 they took jd drew pretty good pick there uh, and then outside of that, their highest pick is, it looks like 13 overall. Yeah, they picked 13 overall twice. They picked uh, 13 in 2000. They took Sean Boyd out of Vista High School in California. And then they also had the 13th overall pick in 2008 when they took Brett Wallace out of Arizona State. Um, 
so that's kind of remarkable that they just never pick high in the draft. And to your point, I do think it'll be really fun to see a team that has such a good track record of, of really developing players picking at the top of the draft. Hopefully the draft class is looking a little bit better um, in about nine or 10 months or however long it is till next year's draft. But yeah, could you imagine them getting getting some of the top end talent in 2023? That would have been fun. Yeah, or imagine them dropping in the draft now with the lottery. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, even if they do drop in the draft, they should still probably be picking the highest they've picked in yeah. multiple decades. So I think, I mean, maybe fans aren't going to be excited about it. It'll at least be something different for their fans to watch for. I mean, Cardinals fans and Dodgers fans never really get to experience the fun of uh, picking at the top of the draft. Um, so that that'll be something new. But how about the White Sox? I mean, I had a lot of people that mentioned the White Sox as a team that should have been in that poll. I don't know that I necessarily had super high expectations for the team entering the year. I'm, I'm looking back at our crystal ball to see where I had them in the division. So I had the White Sox third. I, I kind of thought of them pretty squarely behind the Guardians and Twins. And I didn't, ha- I didn't have too much conviction in Guardians or Twins, which order I just felt confident in them being the top of this division. Did you have higher expectations for the White Sox than me? And what do you think of their current, the current state of the org? They've obviously just made some changes uh, in the front office. Chris Getz is now running the show for the White Sox. Um, just a lot of turmoil for that organization. Uh, what are your thoughts on where they're at right now? I think the only ca- the case you can make for the White Sox is for for them being the most disappointing team is if you're going to take into consideration the future outlook for all of these clubs because I can see the Mets turning it around pretty quickly, right? Mm-hmm. I can see the Yankees doing the same. I can see it happening for the Padres, uh, uh, Cardinals. I mean, you know, maybe you at least look at the sustained success they've had for so many years, but man, it just looks bleak right now for the White Sox and you've got people. It's just been a disaster mm-hmm. season in on the field, um, you know, <laughs> the Tim Anderson fight with Jose Ramirez, the what I, I was away for for a few days. So I just came back and I saw the news that what somebody got shot <laughs> at their stadium. They like didn't yeah. tell anybody. They just sort of were like, no, why, why let anybody know about this? Um, see, it seems like another disaster. Yeah, it's, it's also kind of odd how that can even happen and it be even anything close to a secret like you you imagine that news spreads pretty quickly yeah i was like what what did i miss here like how did this this it's not even a bigger story but Mm. and then yeah and then you have this opportunity to revamp your organization and they hire somebody very quickly who has been internal to the organization in chris gets and you know, I don't really have a, a strong opinion one way or the other on the hire, but mm-hmm. I I don't understand the process here. Like clearly they're you know, upset with the state of the major league club. Mm-hmm. I, I would think with the state of the overall <laughs> uh, organization as well. It's not yeah. like they have a top ten farm system. I don't think anybody, uh, even with the most optimistic person would say that about the White Sox farm system right now. Mm-hmm. So if if you really want to change things, why not even necessarily why hire somebody internal because there could be somebody internal who's extremely uh, 
bright and has very different ideas than mm-hmm. uh, you know than their boss. That's you know the case probably in many many companies around the world. Um, but why why make this decision so quickly instead of having a more thorough process yeah. vetting? people inside the organization people they probably vet the people inside the organization but particularly outside the organization candidates why not talk to more people mm. there's there's a lot of really smart bright people throughout front offices across the game who who I think would find the White Sox job potentially attractive some maybe Maybe not, but I mean, there's... if you turn it around with the White Sox, you're really making a name for yourself because it, it's not an easy job. They're not in a great spot right now, like you said. It's not like their farm system is flush with talent. It's not like Alex Anthopoulos taking over the Braves, where you have just a really loaded young farm system to work with. And I, I do kind of agree. Again, I don't have any insight into who the best options would be or guess specifically, but I also thought it was a bit odd that they hired someone so quickly who has been with the organization since 2016. Um, He took over as the team's director of player development then, held that role for a few years, then was promoted to assistant GM, and has kind of been with this leadership group for some time now. I'm kind of with you. Just the way that other teams talk about the White Sox and their systems and, and maybe how they're behind in some ways, I figured they would have some sort of interim role throughout the season. And then in the off season, you just have a really expansive search process and maybe get some new, new thinking into the organization. Um, it, I, th- I think gets would have made a ton of sense in, in like so- some sort of interim capacity, but it doesn't seem like that's the case at all. I'm with you. I think they probably would have been able to just get a lot more ideas about how to run the team. If you had it a little bit, a little bit of a longer search, maybe a little bit more in depth. I don't know. I don't know how yeah, many sure. people, do we know how many people they interviewed? Has there been any reporting for that? I mean, they they fired them. They fired Han and Williams like what eight days ago. Mm. <laughs> I mean, and, and then they just made this hire now. So that's that's really my concern more than anything is this process. And then Jerry Reinsdorf said the owner said, you know, we owe it to our fans and ourselves to not waste any time. Like, what? What? What's, what's for what for the for the rest of the season like there's no what what is the rush yeah you're not really trading here. anyone away to acquire prospects there's not a lot going on i don't i yeah i don't know it doesn't it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me why you wouldn't have a thorough process to at least speak to or learn more about potential candidates outside the organization but um you know i i think the white Sox are a very uh, uh you know internal organization right they're not bringing a lot of people from outside i think jerry reinsdorf is you know he's 87 years old kind of set in who he knows and who he who he trusts and all that um you and, think it's an ownership you think it's a top-down issue more than anything oh who else is making <laughs> who else is making the hire i'm mean, saying do you think if, if jerry hired someone else he would still be like impeding the team to succeed like if he brought in someone with just a totally different background completely different organization background 
different ideas about how to run the team. Do you think Jerry would still be would still hold the team back, basically? Like, do you think he's one of those owners that is just hampering whoever's making the decisions, regardless of their their background or where they're from, how they think about building? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the owner is extremely important to the organization and doesn't seem like a whole lot of net positives going on right now uh, for for the White Sox. And, and now they're talking, too, about, oh, we want to, you know, we want to turn things around quickly. So it's like... <laughs> I mean, I, I get the desire to try to turn things around quickly, but uh, if I think you're dangerously in this position now where you're going to be kind of like we were talking about with the Angels where you are you don't have a great major league team, but yet you're going to try to put a competitive team on the field this year as opposed to trying to really build up the farm system and build with young players, build with players who are, you know, in their twenties, who are on the upward trajectory of their career. Um, you kind of get in that stuck in the middle range where you kind of the risk is you're going to have another several years, kind of like the angels, except, you know, you don't even have a trout or, or an Otani obviously to, uh, to build around. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll see obviously what the, plan is more once uh you know under cats but mm. not I'd, I'd be particularly uninspired right now if i were uh <laughs> if i were a white Sox fan just the way with this this whole the way the process is played out and the way the organization as a whole is is looking yeah well i mean at least compared to the mets they don't really look like it's a threat for them to finish at the bottom of the division at this point so i guess that's your one kind of saving grace for this season uh you can avoid that man if the mets do finish last and again it, they're 61 to 73 right now as we record this just one game behind the nationals uh who are 62 and 72 <laughs> i can't wait for like the new york media headlines if they actually finish last i'm not rooting for that but I am a little bit excited to see those those New York tabloid headlines if that happens because they're going to get absolutely crucified if they finish last. Well, they should be trying. Well, you can't tell the players to lay down, but like they should be trying to get, particularly in their situation, where if they don't have what if they don't have a pick outside, uh, or if they don't have a pick, excuse me, inside the top six, it's going to drop. 10 spots yeah i'm looking to get the, the exact draft. wording of it because the draft is so convoluted now that i always have to pull up the actual rules before i can speak with any confidence but i think that's right if they're not in the top six then they have that that 10 spot penalty right yeah so it's not a guarantee that you get a, a higher pick if you finish with a worse record the way mm -hmm. it used to be but at least it enhances your probability of doing that and in their situation it comes with pretty significant uh, or a significant penalty if you're if you don't end up with one mm. of those top picks. Yeah, you basically just are are trying to lose for those odds to increase at this point more than anything else. But uh, one team that we haven't talked about that's been uh, I don't again I don't know if disappointing is the word that makes the most sense here, uh, but they've been quite bad. Is the Oakland Athletics? They are currently the worst team in baseball. I thought it was interesting because Jeff Ponce, our, our colleague on his podcast, 90th Percentile, he recently had an episode where basically they just talked about whether or not LSU, 
this championship LSU team, college team, would be able to win games against the A's and how many games they'd be able to win. And I was curious what you thought because I think I was, at least based on listening to their conversation, I was much more optimistic in LSU getting a few more wins. So how many games, this is the scenario, you have both rosters as they are right now for the A's and as the uh, LSU team finished the College World Series, you have both those rosters, you have a 100-game season, pro-style, so pro-style schedule, wood bats, major league rules, all of that, you get health for teams, so you don't have to worry about, in this scenario, Paul Skeen's getting injured, um, everyone who's on the team now is healthy. Just assume health for everyone. How many games does LSU win? I have a, I don't know that I can ever have any confidence in this, but my guess is significantly higher than what those guys were guessing. And I'm very curious where yours would be in, in this regard and like what your rationale might be for it. Because again, the angels are very obvious evidence of this. You, you need more than just two stars to win. But I really think that between Dylan Cruz and Paul Skeens, is there a single pitcher or a single hitter that the A's wouldn't trade for either of those? Because I think they probably would on their entire roster, right? Uh, it's not so much would they trade for them, though. It's who is better right now. That's true, yeah. Well, let's do, let's do that one first. Do you, do you yeah. think there's a single player on their roster, single hitter, on their roster right now that they would not trade for Dylan Cruz? Uh, I mean, I have to look at the <laughs> rosters. <laughs> I've been super close attention to the A's this year. Okay, but. so I'll, I'm, I can go down it for you if, if you want. It, it would be pretty quickly. Here's their, their starting lineup, basically. <laughs> so first base, Ryan Noda. Second base, Zach Geloff. Right field, Seth Brown. DH, Brent Rooker. Left field, Tony Kemp. Third base, Jordan Diaz. Center field, Lawrence Butler. Catcher, Shea Langoliers. And shortstop, Nick Allen. In terms of in terms of talent and trade value, I don't think a single one of those players is getting traded or is not getting traded for Dylan Cruz. But it's but it's not who not trade value. It's who would win the games. Yeah, 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 yeah. But this is this is like a side conversation before we get into your games. Oh yeah, I mean that's <laughs> okay. That's... Any any pitchers? Let's just quickly get this out of the way. Would you trade? Would you trade Paul Skeens for any of these pitchers? J.P. Sears, Paul Blackburn, Kyle Muller, Ken Waldachuk, Zach Neal. No, I mean, okay. if you put if you put either of those Cruz or um, or Skeens on the open market tomorrow, no restrictions. <laughs> those guys are signing hundred million plus. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's get to the actual the actual meat of, of the conversation. Like you're saying, trade value is not the same as. Is what it takes to win a game in the majors right now. So how many games is LSU winning against the A's in this 100-game scenario? So we do see college teams play big league teams in spring training, mm -hmm. and it's not obviously the same as a regular game. They're not necessarily playing the varsity squad for the, uh, for the big league club doesn't they don't really care if they're winning or not and they're probably sure the college guys are, are giving it a hundred percent but um even even then we we see the i don't have the exact numbers but it's something like 95 percent of the time the, the major mm -hmm. league team wins now that includes like basically every team that's not as good as 
2023 LSU and not every team is as bad as the 2023 yeah. A's. Um, I think if you're giving, it probably depends how many starts you're getting from Skeens because Skeens so, could pitch. And again, you're assuming health. It's a hundred game, a hundred game season. So you're giving you're giving twenty starts basically to Skeens, and you're giving twenty starts to Thatcher Hurd. I think that's key here. He's getting that many starts. If you're doing a five man starting rotation, you're doing a hundred games. He's getting twenty starts. All right. Yeah, I guess you're not. <laughs> Well, I, if nobody can get hurt, then sure. Yeah, well, yeah, again, health health is a huge factor. If, if Paul Skeens gets hurt, <laughs> if Dylan Cruz gets hurt, this is significantly different, I think, for me. But but for me, I think if you're giving Paul Skeens 20 starts, if you're giving Thatcher Hurd 20 starts, there's 40 games where even if you're still like overwhelmingly the underdogs, I think there's enough randomness in baseball, and I think the A's are a bad enough team that Skeens is going to have a few games where he shoves, and you only need a couple runs to win a low-scoring game. So I, I think the biggest challenge in this hypothetical is LSU's bats. Uh, some people said, oh, like the, the biggest difference is the bullpen. Like once you actually get to your third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth best pitchers, that's where the biggest difference is. I think the biggest challenge for LSU is just the fact that they maybe have faced a few arms in the season in the sec or in the college world series that are big league quality but every single arm you're seeing is going to be of big league quality so i think the players on the team who are good college hitters are going to get shut down a lot and so you're probably not going to be scoring a lot but i just think that between skeins and herd and the fact that i think dylan cruz is as talented as any of these hitters on the a's like i think cruz hitting a few home runs is going to win you a few games with that combination. And I think just the randomness of baseball really gets under understated in these examples. Like, I don't think it's the same as the Alabama football to NFL comparisons. Baseball inherently has more randomness in, in single-game scenarios. I mean, I don't think that you can make a case that there's any player on the A's, in the A's starting lineup or rotation that's better than the Braves but they took two of three from the Braves like I just think randomness happens in baseball and I don't know that I think LSU has enough talent this 2023 LSU team has enough talent to get you somewhere in the 10 to 20 win range and there are a lot of people that I've seen that think that's crazy online but that's like a 20 percent win rate at, at, at a best case scenario I don't think that's crazy is, is that crazy I think I think I don't even Dylan Cruz I think would struggle right like you're not sending dylan cruz to the big leagues no but... right now if you put him there i mm. think the a's that even the some of the a's hitters mm. like like rooker noda like these guys are better right now yeah but than dylan cruz he, he also doesn't have to be very good for the team to win 10 to 20 games like there are four players on the a's team that are hitting above the major league average they're not a bunch of world beaters either so I do think that Skeens and Hurd are talented enough that, again, even in a large majority of their starts, they could get hit around. I think you'll get enough <laughs> you'll get enough opportunities to win a low-scoring game where you just maybe Tommy White runs into one, maybe Cruz runs into one, and there's there's some really talented players on this team. We wrote about it early in the year. Like there there's a non-zero chance that like 13 players on this roster are big leaguers. That that's kind of impressive. And I just think there's enough randomness in baseball to make it happen somewhere in that 10 to 20 range. 
Yeah, so I actually agree with the points you said about both both the range and about how much random variation mm-hmm. there is in the game. Just lucky bounces, things like that, um, that can really change the course of the game pretty significantly. Mm-hmm. But I do think that the the state of the LSU offense would be it would it would, it's it's nowhere near even the quality of the of the A's offense right yes. now like they don't right. have anybody who's posting you know an above average not that the A's have many I guess but who's who's posting an above average line <laughs> against again the, the A's have four right the, A's, the A's have four and again also this is they're they're playing against major league pitching and those averages like if you could run the A's lineup out against the A's pitchers <laughs> I would assume their their averages would be higher as well but well, whereas know. whereas Paul Skeens is a, I, to me, he's a major league pitcher right now. Like I know he just got hit in his last Double A start. Fine, mm-hmm. like that's gonna happen. But I think you could plug him into the big leagues tomorrow, and he would he would fit right in comfortably. Yeah, and that's what I think too. And I think there are some people who, even after the the super hype season that Paul Skeens just had, and how scouts are talking about him, I, I think people are overstating the talent gap. Because, and again, they're not the same pitchers, and you can critique this argument if you want from me, but just looking at Steven Strasburg, how he adapted to the big leagues, he had, let me just make sure this is accurate. So prior to Steven Strasburg's promotion to the bigs, he had five starts in the Arizona Fall League as a 20-year-old. He had 11 starts between AA and AAA as a 21-year-old. Then he was promoted as a 21-year-old in 2010, basically midway through his first pro season, first full pro season, and he started 12 games and posted a 2.91 ERA, struck out 12 batters per nine, walked 2.3. Like, it's not unheard of for an elite talent to move to the majors really quickly and not only fit in well, but thrive. I think Skeens is of that caliber of talent, and especially when Skeens is facing arguably the worst lineup in the major leagues like i think he could put up numbers pretty similar to that is that crazy like strasburg was going through all kinds of talent of teams it's not like he was just playing the worst teams in baseball in 2010 when he put up again a sub three era yeah i I mean i i think potentially he could but i also think strasburg was just a better and more ready prospect mm-hmm. than Skeens was at the time like you can say look oh look at what Skeens' stuff is now compared mm-hmm. to the reports on what Strasburg's stuff was at the time but compare what Strasburg's stuff was at the time yeah to the rest of Major League Baseball in what 2009 or whatever it was 2010. yeah 2010. I agree I think that's yeah. a good point too though because the the velocity for Skeens is higher than Strasburg, but across the board, the velocity in the big leagues is up since then. So, and sliders are net like Strasburg slider, where it was at the time compared to other breaking balls in mm-hmm. the league. I mean, Skeens has a really good slider too, but it's not going to stand out as much when mm-hmm. relative to other breaking balls. I mean, it's again, it's still like a plus plus pitch, but relative to how many other just wipeout sliders we're seeing from guys who whose names you don't even recognize coming out of the bullpen <laughs> it's it's a little bit different now yeah and i'm actually pulling up um so i know entering the or when the college season ended uh, paul Skeens basically averaged 98 miles per hour on his fastball 
and I think there are only two pitchers, all of 2022 starters who averaged 98 or more. One of the other things that I think would be really interesting about this is how does Skeen's stuff, and, and I, we might be seeing it a little bit now as he's in the minor leagues, but how does Skeen's stuff change on a pro schedule when he doesn't get a full seven days in between starts? Because again, like people have nitpicked the fastball velocity or the fastball shape with Skeens. I think that's the one obvious thing you could nitpick if you wanted to. So if he is basically not sitting 98 and he's more in that like 95, 96 range on average on a pro schedule, then I think you can maybe critique that fastball shape a little bit more. But depending on like what the fastball is sitting, like even if you don't think the shape is great, if he's sitting 98, there's a lot of good numbers to show that 98 right down the middle still gets you really good results at the big league level. Um, 98 miles per hour from a starter still does a whole lot of work for you. So I would be curious to see how the stuff for Skeens played in, in this like hypothetical environment. Where, where are they playing these fake games? I wish they would play them. It would be more entertaining than whatever the A's are doing. Um, no, but where where are they going to play? I think you could do just a big league stadium with wood bats. I think you would want big league, basically replicate the big leagues as much as possible, except LSU is in the visiting dugout. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't have LSU have some home games. I think that'd yeah. be more fun. It would be more fun. I mean, the more, LSU more, fans, more fans would probably be more interesting. Like they'd be more supportive than the A's fans in well, this they'd scenario. Be more fans. Yeah, nothing against be. A's. I, we understand why the A's fans are. <laughs> not I got to go them. to Alex Box for Crap the Tennessee order. series, yeah. and it was a fantastic environment. So yeah, see, you add in you add in the home field advantage for fifty games for LSU. Come on. They're going to win 10 to 20, I think. What's your number? Because I don't think you've set a number yet. Yeah, I was going to say probably 10 to 20. Also 10, 25. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice. Just randomness can happen. (laughs) Yeah, I think think it's very easy for people to... I think baseball people love the fact that the gap between the major league level and the amateur level is wider than most other sports, or at least there are more levels. But I think when we think about these like thought exercises we we tend to overstate that and also understate just how random baseball can be like there's a reason that the a's how many games have they won this year they're the worst team in baseball and they're still winning games against the best teams in baseball because of that randomness so i I just think you play enough i think there's still a smaller gap between the a's and the braves still mm -hmm. it's not yeah but again i'm not i'm not saying that the that lsu is going to have a 30% win rate that the A's have this year. Like I, I'm still going under that. I'm saying anywhere from 10% sure. to 20%. That that doesn't seem crazy aggressive. Some people, I know Josh, I don't know if Josh was being serious when he tweeted this, but he responded zero. I think there's like, if you're saying zero, I, I think it is more difficult to make the case that the A's win 95 games against LSU than it is to make the, the opposite case. Like I think it's, you have more work to do. Zero is yes. a crazy answer to me. Like, I think 20 is significantly more likely than zero. Yeah, I think he's trying to trigger you on Twitter. Well, that's two things that trigger me, Josh and Twitter. And combined, <laughs> I think it just compounds it. But I, I wouldn't be surprising to me if that was a serious answer from Josh. I'll have to ask him offline if that was serious or he was just joking. But What was the answer? What did Jeff say? Uh, Jeff, Jeff seemed more, so most of the people on their podcast were saying like one person said zero to three, someone said zero to five. 
Um, I don't think it got much higher than that. I think Jeff might have been more willing to go towards the 10 range, but I don't, I don't remember what his specific answer was. And I'm also going to pull up, because Jeff tweeted it out. He's like, how many, how many wins do you think LSU would get out of a... Okay, so here, here are the results from Jeff's tweet. Um, his options were more than 20 wins for LSU, 15 to 20, 10 to 14, and under 10. For this one, I, I just picked 15 to 20, because my actual range is 10 to 20, but I figured I'd probably be better going with the higher one and kind of putting my, my opinion out there. Um, more than 20 has 27% of the vote. 15 to 20 has 21% of the vote. 10 to 14 has 18% of the vote and under 10 has 33% of the vote. So, I mean, it's a little more granular than that, I think, especially for the under 10 crowd. I'd be curious to know how many people actually thought it was like zero to five. Cause I just don't think that's very likely, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just crazy. Maybe I'm doing the opposite of what I'm saying everyone else is. Maybe I'm really just understating the, the talent gap between like the, the third best player on down. But I, I also know. genuinely think this, yeah, this LSU team is like one of the most talented teams we've seen, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they were the be- they weren't even the best team in the SEC this year. By the way, they didn't win the they didn't win the conference, um, but I do think they have a lot of players that would have a better chance of adapting to facing the A's 100 games than a number of other teams. But oh well, we, we can't figure this out. We won't know. So it's more just an interesting, interesting thought exercise. I guess I'm just more optimistic on on the college guys than other people. But I'm sticking to it. So if you guys have any thoughts on this, if you think I'm crazy, or if you want to let us know how many games you think LSU'd win, uh, let us know. I think it's fun. It's probably not fun for any A's fans who are listening. Um, but there we are. What should we talk about next, Ben? Got a lot of prospect stuff. A lot of people moving up quickly through the minors. Yeah, a lot of a lot of promotions, which feels like unusual this time of year. But with mm. the season now going a few more weeks in the minor leagues, I think teams are being more aggressive and saying, "Yeah, let's promote either this draft pick to a full season league, this high school player from you know the complex leagues are done. Let's bump him up, or mm. let's move this guy up." And whereas in the past you might have said, "Well, what's the point for another?" six days six games to mm. promote this guy but hey like why not promote uh you know matt shaw to double a and have him spend a few more weeks of the season up there mm-hmm. yeah we have had a lot um we're just running through a few ethan salas was promoted to double a um jason dominguez is getting called up to the big leagues i think that's happening tomorrow right friday as we record this on a thursday Mm-hmm. Uh, Evan Carter to AAA, Matt Shaw, you mentioned Dylan Cruz, Paul Skeen, Hurston Waldrop, all up to AA. Do you think this is a change because of the schedule? Do you think it's because of the minor league shifting and being a little bit different than they used to be with just fewer levels at, at the bottom end? Do you think it's more of a trend of just teams trusting young players to have success? I mean, I, know, I understand not everyone is operating like the Angels are, just throwing all their guys into the big leagues immediately. Uh, but do you think this is more schedule related or I guess how many how many factors do you think are involved in what what seems to be more aggressive promotions across the board? And, and by the way, Nolan Chanuel, he's he's still got an OPP of 457 through through 10 games going straight from mid-major college competition uh, to the big league. So I think Dylan Cruz might be all right in that hypothetical. Well, the Ethan Salas one, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's kind of its own category sending a 17 year old catcher to 
double A. Like when I mm-hmm. heard that news, I was like, what? Why? <laughs> but okay. He had only played he, he had only played nine. So he started the year uh with Lake Elsinore, played forty eight games there, was promoted to Fort Wayne, high A in the Midwest League. Uh he only played nine games there and he also only hit two hundred, two forty three, two twenty nine. So when he was initially promoted, I think there was a lot of skepticism about the promotion. A lot of people asking the same thing, like why? Um, I'm curious about your take on this, though, because you know Ethan Salas as much as anyone does. Uh, maybe you have some insight into like why you would want to push a player this young who is playing catcher, who's not, again, it's a small sample, but hasn't really like lit the world on fire at the high level. Like, What's the thinking here? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, he is super polished and advanced for his age. Uh, at the same time, his age is still roughly equivalent to a 2024 or even 2025 high school player in the United States. And it's not, I, I don't know why he didn't just stay in high, a. like even, even just playing in low a right now is a very aggressive assignment. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he handled it extremely well. He showed why he's a top 10 prospect in baseball um at the same time i i don't i don't agree with the sentiment from some fans or or just some people that like this could end up ruining him like i i don't i don't think that's a big deal if he goes to double a and struggles like guys can struggle at a level and then adapt to it figure it out i mean Pudge Rodriguez was in the he was in double A. He was pushed there when he was I mean he was 19 years old, but like he he didn't do great when when he was at yeah. that level. I'm um, pulling this one up. Yeah, he was 19 years old, uh double A. Tulsa in 1991, he hit 274, 294, 389. Uh yeah, the strikeout to walks were a bit concerning. Then Really straight from there, he went to the bigs. Yeah, well, yeah, he went to the big leagues later that year. Also, not great offensively. Mm-hmm. Um, walked like it was a five, five walks in eighty-eight games. I mean, <laughs> three three home runs. Like yeah, two and you know, then of course he he was never heard from again and. Now he's out of baseball and <laughs> ruined his, his career. So I, yeah, what his I, fourteen like, what stars have, followed after that. Yeah, would I have sent him to Double A? No, I mean, would anybody else in the world, maybe other than uh, AJ Preller running an organization, <laughs> send him to Double A? Also, probably no. But I, I also don't think it. To me, it's not like oh, this is gonna like make or break his career. This yeah, this somehow going to ruin him if he struggles mm-hmm. at 17 years old and in double a there I does mean, he could seem stay, to be a... he could stay there for another like three years and he'll still be <laughs> the youngest player in that yeah league. he's right now he's seven and a half years younger than the average hitter in, in in the texas league which is insane but i do see at least on social media a lot of people like expressing the sentiment that like oh you could really harm a player's development if you push them too aggressively if you push them to the bigs like 
I didn't see this a ton with Shanuel because I think people were just caught up in kind of the historic nature of the moment. But I'm sure there were some people who also thought like, oh, what if you're what if you're harming Shanuel's development by pushing him to the bigs? Like, do you think there's a certain player that that actually can be the case? And I would imagine this would be more like teams having to know the makeup of a player and how they handle failure. Um, if that leads them to kind of spiral or if they, they can fail and like try and learn from it, like how much aptitude they have. Um, and everything I've heard about Ethan Salas, I would, I would imagine he's one of those super high aptitude kids. Um, but do you think it's player dependent or you think in general, we kind of overstate what, what failing at any given level will do to like future improvements? I think it's actually more skill set driven than makeup. I think mm. if, and again, I would not even have Ethan Salas in double A right now again anyway, but in particular, if you have a player who has a skill set where you, you need to develop certain traits from that player to be able to take the next step in his development. And if you put him in a situation where um, he's going to basically be set up to fail and not develop the aspects of the game that you need him to develop. That's, that's not good, right? Like you have a pitcher who, uh, you know, let's say really needs to, uh, you know, develop a certain, you know, develop a changeup, right. But he also has, uh, you know, a lot of control issues. He's always behind in the count, you, you push this guy too fast up to, uh, you know, to say triple A when really he should probably be in like low A. Um, well, he's probably just not going to throw his change up much if he's always behind in the count, uh, working in, in counts that aren't advantageous for him to throw that pitch. There, there's certain things like that where, yeah, it can, it could potentially impede a player's development if they're if they're getting into um, you know or getting into bad habits offensively um, but again I don't think it's going to this is not a situation where I think it's going to uh, destroy Ethan Salas if <laughs> if it uh, if, if he happens to struggle for for the rest of the season this year yeah I think at every level, really, I've been kind of impressed with just the strikeout to walk rates that he's shown. I mean, having a, a 10% walk rate, even in a really small sample, a double A, I feel like is impressive. So I'll be curious to see uh, what happens with that moving forward. He is one of the more extreme just prospect uh, storylines we've had in a long, long time. Another prospect who I feel like is... I mean, I'm curious how you view both these players at their sort of peak prospect hype as international players, because Jason Dominguez coming up is going to have a lot of people very excited. He was one of the most hyped hyped international players in some time. He already has a, a pretty iconic nickname um, that has he seemingly had for years now. But Jason Dominguez coming up to the bigs, we have a number 60 right now on our top 100 Yankees fans have been really excited about this player for a long time. What what should our expectations for Dominguez be um, this year and I think moving forward? Because I think there probably are going to be a lot of people who expect him to be a star and maybe even a superstar. It feels like here at BA, especially with JJ kind of leading the uh, 
leaving the charge and, and trying to reset expectations for Dominguez, just given how his development has gone in the minors, how the tools um, maybe haven't been quite as explosive as we thought they could be. Um, like, what what are the expectations for Dominguez? Because it, it seems like he's still pretty toolsy across the board, um, showed some pretty good adjustments this year after struggling a little bit early on. Um, is this an everyday regular? Is this an above-average regular? Is this a, an all-star? Like, what are the expectations for Dominguez? And I guess, how would you compare and contrast them or him to Ethan Salas uh, early on in, in both their careers, kind of at, the, at their same age? Um. Hmm. Him versus Ethan Salas. <laughs> yeah, just very, very different, different players. But I think in terms of they're probably the two most hyped, most recent international prospects, right? Is there someone I'm missing um, that would have been in between, like Dominguez and and now? I don't think so, but I could be missing but, one. Between them? No, not in in between them. Yeah. Um, Prior to Dominguez, I would imagine it's Kevin Maiton or. Wander Franco. Uh, yeah, it's like Wander Franco, Vladdy yeah. Jr. Like, Vladdy yeah, was a Vladdy. Big deal. Definitely Vladdy. Um, and then, you know, I mean, like Moncada, maybe, but he's obviously a different mm. uh, category being an older yeah. Cuban prospect. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think where we have Dominguez right now is a fair spot for him. Um, I mean, he reached the big leagues at 20 years old. Uh, you know, w- would he be there had the Yankee season not imploded? Probably not, right? So, like, that's part of the cons- <laughs> of the reason why he's up now. But e- even if he wasn't up this year, he was going to be probably up next year as a 21-year-old. If you said he was going to be in the big leagues by the time he was 20, 21 years old at the time he signed, I think you'd say, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Pretty excited with, absolutely with that outcome. Um, I mean, I think at the time there was probably more hope, not necessarily that it, he would be a slam dunk center fielder, but just a, a, there was more optimism at the time that he could potentially stick in center field now it seems like probably more likely corner outfield with him which just the way he's built he's like uh and i said i think at the time kind of compared him to the time he signed to a a smaller version of like a shorter version at least of yohan moncada like that kind of filled out thicker body type um so I, I think it's it's gone probably more in the corner outfield direction long term, mm-hmm. but I think he does have the offensive ability um, and and the defensive skill set too. If if he does go to a corner to turn into yeah average to to above average everyday player, is he going to mm-hmm. be that right out of the gate? No, like it's probably going to struggle. This, I mean, I don't know exactly, but I would, I would think he would struggle this year. Again, it's going to be only a month, so anything mm-hmm. can happen in a, a pretty small sample window like that. But this is, I mean, and I said at the time he signed for all the tools mm-hmm. and athleticism that he has. This is also a pretty high baseball IQ player. Like he'd been growing up playing in games all his life, like, you can see i think he was even a catcher a little bit grown up like this is a really smart like baseball rat type player um 
patient, draws a lot of walks. Like there's some swing and miss in there, but there's you know power too from from both sides of the plate. And yeah, first half of the season not great, but like I mean, just look what he's done the last two months has just been electric between double a triple a so uh, you know like next year uh, like i don't expect him to be an above average player in 2024 so i I wouldn't count on him for that but i do think long term he he has a chance to develop into that average to to above average regular yeah i just pulled this up just looking at his numbers i mean between double A AA and triple A this year, he's hit 265, 377, 425. He's got 15 home runs, 22 doubles, 40 stolen bases. Uh, there are only six players in the minor leagues that have 15 or more homers, 20 or more doubles, and 40 or more stolen bases. I figured that list would actually be shorter. I'm surprised, maybe I shouldn't be surprised, um, by the number of players that have that combination of power and speed at the minor league level. Uh, but he's in a pretty small group, and he's the youngest of that group. Um, Jonathan Classe with the Mariners is, is the other young player who's in that group just in terms of like total minor league performances here. Um, yes, that'd be cool to see. He's also split his time in center and left field. So he still is playing center field uh, as much as he's playing left field in the minors. So I'm curious to see where the Yankees roll him out and how he looks defensively because you're right, it is a pretty weird body type and it's not a body type I would associate with 40 stolen base speed either. So I'm very curious to see just how that evolves how the run tool evolves and just watching him play. Like he's been, it feels like Jason Dominguez has been this household name for so long. And the fact that this is really the beginning of his career, like it's kind of crazy when we start watching these, especially international players, just how long we've been waiting for them. And the fact that, like you said, he's reaching the majors in his age 20 season. So it's not exactly like this is long overdue. Yeah. Um, and he signed in 2019, so remember <laughs> 2020, nothing. And not only nothing, like, there was no – the Yankees didn't do uh, alternate training site or – I don't I think they didn't even do instructional league that year. Like, that was <laughs> – he's really only – this is only his third minor league season for a player he signed at 16 years old. Yeah, he's played in 295 minor league games, and then you can add 20 games um, that he played in the Arizona Fall League as well. Um, So pretty remarkable, pretty impressive. I think I basically just hope people kind of recalibrate their expectations for him because if he winds up being the solid average everyday big leaguer, that's a tremendous outcome. And I feel like if that happens, um, people will be disappointed, and I hope that's not the case. I don't know. I don't think people – I think people – You don't think Yankees fans will be disappointed in that? (laughs) I think, I think they people, definitely will. I, I think people can see his numbers. Like what <laughs> you can see his numbers, what they are right now. Like they're good. They're not like people just think of the Martian and think back to <laughs> the video that I think you had his first pro home run, like massive expectations. Like, do we think that everyone has their expectations calibrated correctly? Cause I, I don't like we're, I don't think we should even call him the Martian to be honest. Is that true for any player? Like I, I Probably Red Sox fans have unreasonable expectations for Marcelo Meyer. I would think. I mean, mm. look, I'm sure. If you look people... at the if you look at the value of the the signed baseball cards for both those players, I think uh, that's definitely a case of outsized expectations. Oh well, yeah. I mean, there's the, the yeah the cards that he was signing going for <laughs> astronomical yeah prices when he signed. But yeah, that was fun going down to see him for it wasn't his first official 
home run. So it was the, I went down, it was like 2019 after he signed, I think it was in October, beginning of October. And the Yankees do, I was going down for like tricky league or like, I guess at that point it was Dominican instructional league, which is like very game heavy in the Dominican Republic because the, at that time you'd sign on July 2nd and then the teams would want to get the players who sign on July 2nd into as many games as possible. Yeah. They couldn't, they're, they're not playing the Dominican summer league, but they want to get these you know guys playing a lot of games so they can expedite their development and their game skills that way. Uh, but the Yankees had a really short window, probably the shortest window of any team for games they were playing in Dominican instructs. So I was down, I was down for like a couple different weeks um, in the fall that year. And there was uh, one week I set up to make sure I could see the the Yankees playing to see Dominguez. I was, gonna, I was supposed to go see him, I think, like two or three times. And I ended up, it was just so much rain. It just rained so much that time of year mm-hmm. um, in, in Boca Chica in the Dominican Republic. And, um, so like one or t- one time it got rained out. Another time I had to like audible my schedule. And then one day I went there and it like, everything was fine in the morning or in the beginning of the morning. And then they start playing the game and it just starts raining. And I'm like, Oh my God, you gotta be kidding me I'm here <laughs> for like a week. And I'm not even going to get to see Dominguez play it's like his first at bat it's like pouring like you can see it obviously in the in the video and then just like bam hits it over the fence hits it over like the second fence that the yankees have at their academy to prevent balls from going into the trees in left field and that fence was not enough to hold uh dominguez and i was like oh my god that was (laughs) that was that was pretty impressive and then uh, the rest of the game got rained out, but uh, very, very cool to be able to uh, see that and then spend some time talking with Jason afterwards. Yeah, I remember when when that happened and when you kind of shared the video, it was really exciting. It almost felt like like a, a debut of a domestic prospect in the big leagues. Like it, it just had a lot of fanfare around it, and it was really fun to to see this guy uh, in affiliated game that you'd heard so much about, like having some success early on. So it's fun. Yeah. So hopefully all these he gets... people were writing about him, but mm. never saw him play. So I was like, all right, cool. Now we can just show everybody like him him playing in a in a real game. Yeah, absolutely. Now a lot a lot more people will be able to see him play um, tomorrow or today as you're listening to this podcast. Uh, another player whose uh, big league debut isn't here but is uh, getting a little bit closer is Evan Carter. He was promoted to AAA recently, currently our number 10 prospect overall on the top 100. Another guy who's really seemed to turn it on kind of later in the season. He spent 97 games um, in AA with Frisco, hit 284, 411, 451. Um, solid power, some doubles, some steals. Just a well-rounded hitter. Any thoughts on Evan Carter? I think he's a, he's always going to be a fun one for me because I think he was one of the first like real surprising picks that at the time I was like, what are they doing? And he's just been way better than everyone expected since then. Just a, a phenomenal pick from from the Rangers and has really cruised ever since that selection and, and since he kind of started in pro ball. I don't really think he's had too many huge hiccups or struggles 
so far it's been steady production, good tools across the board, good defense, like just a very well-rounded player. He's promoted to AAA. Um, again, maybe if this was a different scenario, like you just mentioned with Dominguez, if it was a different club that he was playing for, it wouldn't be surprising if a guy like him, I think he just turned 21 recently, was making a big league debut in another environment. But any thoughts on Evan Carter's season, his promotion, or just expectations for him? Yeah, I agree with what you said on Carter. At the same time, it, he feels like probably one of the more um, – one of the more polarizing prospects that we have ranked at the top of our list. Interesting. That, because I think, I, and I think the reason is just the power. Mm, yeah. Right. Like how much power is he ultimately going to have? And what, what does that do for his value? And mm. what does it do for when he does face major league pitching? Because, like, you know, like you look at the exit velocities that he has, it's not, it's not great. Um, Do you know what his average exit velocity is this year? I don't have the most updated minor league trackman numbers. Uh, at one point, it was, I know it was like the average was in the mid 80s. Um, if, if, if it was around 85, I would be a little more comfortable than if it was like in the 80 to 85 range. Because I am hopeful that he can still add a little bit of strength and, and get to a little bit more. Because he shouldn't be at his like peak physical maturity at 20 or 21. Like I think that would come in a few years. So I'm hopeful that it can improve. And I'm also hopeful that even if it doesn't and it's more like below average power, he'd still be a really good player. Um, but it is that has always kind of been his thing, right? The power is the big question. And I guess how much that matters to you will change how you value him as a player. But the fact that he, I believe in the hit tool so much, I believe in the defensive ability up the middle, I believe in really all the other tools, um, and he's been such a steady performer, I, I just feel like he's going to do enough in other areas of the game to still be a reliable, regular, at, at minimum maybe. And at minimum maybe seems crazy when we're talking about any any hitting prospect who we haven't seen at the big leagues. But I, I maybe have, I would be more towards the optimistic outcome on Carter at this point, I think. Than, than pessimistic. And it sounds like you're kind of there with me. Yeah, yeah, I am as well. I mean, you have premium position, very disciplined hitter, uh, strong track record of getting on base, putting the bat to the ball, uh, swing works well, athletic. I think there's still more room to fill out and grow into some more power. I mean, it's not like he's a, a slap hitter mm. by any means. Um there is some some power in there but it's like right now it's below average if, if you put him into a <clears throat> into the big leagues uh, mm -hmm. but i think he has a chance to to improve that and yeah like we've heard brandon nimmo type comps on him right another left-handed hitting outfielder who's you know patient draws a lot of walks um and and throughout his time in the minors had you know some similar questions of how how is the power mm -hmm. going to translate like he i mean he had even less power than evan carter did when he was in the minors like he hit i mean like single digit home run i think it was even look I'll it up pull here. it up i'll pull it up you can keep talking yeah when he was yeah when he was 20 20 years old in low a he hit two home runs in 110 games. Hmm. 
in a low way, right? <laughs> like, so like, and Car- Carter's ahead of him, but I think that could be a potential outcome for him. And I don't know, maybe, maybe Brandon Nimmo's even underrated right now. Like that, he's, he's I mean, he uh, signed a $160 million contract, so he's, he's at least not underrated for, yeah, for the people yeah, paying him. Um, But I do agree. I think that's a good comp. I think the fact that, like, again, even if he doesn't become this massive power hitter, you look at him physically, I think there's still room to add strength. And and maybe it's a case where he just is always going to be on the the fairly lean side. There are a number of players who just never really bulk up as much as you'd expect. But I think there's a little bit more to come. And again, I'm not even super concerned if it really doesn't. Like, it'd be fine if he is this 10 to 15 homer guy in the big leagues. I think, I think he'll be enough of a pure hitter. I think he'll get on base. I think he can be a guy who, who also adds a lot of value on the bases. That's clearly more of a factor in today's game with the new rule changes than it previously was like to what degree is, is that valuable is maybe interesting to talk through. I think, I think stolen bases can maybe be overrated um, in terms of like how much impact you're going to provide. But I, I just think when you, when you take the sum of his parts, it's a really good player even if you're looking at a guy who who might have below average power. And I'm again, we talk about this with a lot of young players. I, I still think more can come. If if he wound up being like a forty five fifty power hitter in his peak seasons, I don't think I'd be too surprised by that. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned you talked about like Matt Shaw with the Cubs, Dylan Cruz with the mm-hmm. Nationals, Hurston Waldrop with the Braves, obviously Skeens too with the Pirates, all these guys getting promoted to mm-hmm double a now i do think part yeah part of it is like if if you just look back to pre covid you know season in 2019 that's we used to have the new york pen league right we used to have the northwest league these short season leagues and teams were sending their players there you know the season ended labor day and now i think yeah it's it's different i think that's that's part of the factor and why these players are mm-hmm. getting promoted. Like we used to have like Adley Rushman would just go to the New York Penn league. And uh, like Corey Lee was there that year when, when the Astros drafted mm-hmm. or Bryson Stott with the Phillies spent like almost 200 plate appearances <laughs> in the New York Penn league. And if, you know, if those guys, if that happens, those guys got drafted today, I, I got to think they're, they're at least in high A or mm-hmm. at least in low A. And some, I think like Adley reached low A at the end of the season. But yeah, some of those guys, again, situation dependent, but I think a lot of those guys would be in high A and and potentially potentially double A right now too. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I mean, just the minor league setup is a lot different. All those guys you mentioned are very prominent 2023 prospects who, I, I mean, I think guys like Dylan Cruz and Paul Skeens especially should have always been guys that move quickly, whatever minor league system. Like, that's part of the reason why they went where they went. Just the talent, the polish that they have um, was pretty obvious. I don't think there's any reason for Dylan Cruz to be in low way Fredericksburg just dominating the competition any longer than than he really need to be so I, I kind of like that I like pushing him aggressively I, I thought Paul Skeens was the most big league ready player in the draft so again like him basically starting out at the double a level um actually uh, did they throw him directly to double a maybe he had a, a start yeah Skeens. Uh, Skeens no they kind of like yeah he's, Gulf he, Coast or Florida league Florida he's basically Conference just had a couple league. really really brief starts um well his first double a start was pretty brief too (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, not too concerned about that. But yeah, in double A now, Matt Shaw. I mean, Matt Shaw. There, there are a couple of prospects I want to talk about too. They're just off to two really strong pro debuts. But Shaw would be near the top of the list. He's been tremendous. Um, I mean, one of the better power speed combinations in the draft to see this translating to pro ball really early is uh, or really quickly has been fun to see. He's hitting 392, 438, 660. Just really impressive numbers. Most of those coming um, at high A. He's now with double A, Tennessee. Um, so he's been great. Uh, Hurston Waldrip has been really good. And I think Hurston Waldrip has, that pick was probably, I think I, I think I said it at the time, and I'll say it now again, like I think Hurston Waldrip to the Braves at 24 was my favorite pick of the first round just because what a tremendous player to get in a player development pipeline that has really just pumped guys like this out and moves them quickly and has great success seems to do a good job helping pitchers throw more strikes focus on their strengths toss away pitches that they don't that they don't really need to be using as much or at least the weakest parts of their arsenal is the Braves are perfectly fine saying hey scrap that pitch we're going to focus on your best ones throwing them over the plate um, so far, Waldrip, again, he started out in low A, moved up to high A, um, and now he's going to be moving to double A. He's thrown 15 innings, 25 punch outs, six walks. The Braves have already scrapped his curveball. It sounds like they're just focusing on fastball, split change slider with him. Um, and I, I don't know if this is going to happen. It would still be pretty aggressive, but imagine a scenario where the Braves are in the postseason and maybe they feel like their bullpen is a little shaky. I think Hurston Waldrop has the stuff to to succeed in a role role like that, and they've been one of the more aggressive teams in terms of pushing their young players. He's 21. Uh, AJ Smith is younger than that, I believe. I need to make sure I don't have his age wrong. Um, you think they would bring a guy who had a four plus ERA and was walking five per nine in? In the SEC, why not? They make pitchers better all the time. He's, he's better than that now. <laughs> I mean, Ryan Cusick was immediately better when he got into the Brave system uh, after Wake Forest. So they they really, I I basically am at the point where I'm just not going to doubt the Braves on pitchers because I think I would love to go back in time and juice Spencer Strider up our rankings. Um, so maybe I'm overconfident in their ability to develop arms, but I, I think that's the right side to err on at this point. Yeah, so that's the other thing is, so we're at, we just added, um, we're adding Hurston Waldrop to our top 100 now with some graduations. Mm. Um, I get it, but also like, all right, so I'm looking at, we had him 18th on our draft rankings, and there's still a few guys ahead of him. Mm. You know, some who've done well, some who have not. (laughs) Um, He ends up going 24th to the Braves. Slight underslot deal. He only has a few starts now in high A. So what? Obviously, you, you know, are running our our draft rankings, and it it seems like you were in full, uh, full, fully endorsing Hurston mm-hmm. Waldrop from from what you were just saying. So help me understand what's what's changed or why why you think Waldrop is a top one hundred guy now. Yeah, I mean, I think. In terms of the the players who are already on the top 100, I I think he just fits with a lot of the players who are already off the board. I'm I'm pulling up our rankings now to see who exactly from the 23 draft is already on the 100. But we basically have the entirety of the top 10 
We have, uh, beyond that, who of these players, if you have our top 100 up or no, um, Jacob Gonzalez. Yeah, he's not on. Tommy Troy. Troy, Troy and Shaw are on. Troy and Shaw. And that, those are the last two or the furthest mm-hmm. down our draft rankings. Yeah, yeah so I, I really don't view a huge gap in talent between this 11 to 12 on our draft board to basically 25 to Kevin McGonigal. Like, I really... I think that they're all similarly talented players. The B8 grades would uh, justify that as well. They're pretty much all the same. I think the big thing with Hurston Waldrop is, is probably the the thing that people are maybe holding against Chase Dolander. Like Chase Dolander to the Rockies is maybe not the landing spot that you want for a pitcher. I think Hurston Waldrop to the Braves is almost an ideal spot that you want for a pitcher. And I'm also not holding the underslot bonus too hard against him because I just heard that he really wanted to play for the Braves. And if he wanted to slide down to that spot, like he was willing to take a deal. Uh, and if that was the case, I'm, I'm not going to hold the underslot bonus against him. Um, we're talking about putting guys like Arjun Namala, who has had a strong pro debut um, and has looked really good. Good reviews early on from him on the board. And so like, if we're talking about putting Arjun Namala on the top 100, which I think could be justified, I, I don't see why we would be opposed to Hurston Waltrip, who's now with an organization that just excels at pitcher development. And I've heard from people um, who have seen Waltrip so far in the pros who think he's the best prospect in their system, including AJ Smith Shaver. So I just think, I think the talent is legit. The stuff is among the best in the class. If you take away Paul Skeens, you could make a very easy and very simple case that Hurston Waltrip had the best pure stuff in the 2023 draft. Um, if he's looked good, he's throwing strikes, he's simplifying his his repertoire, his arsenal, uh, and you feel confident about the chance to start, I, I think that he just has... He maybe had more variance to other players who are on the board in this range, but I also think he had more upside than a lot of players in front of him too. So it wouldn't surprise me if he remains a polarizing player. If, if you just have more questions about the strike throwing, you look at his college history and you think um i don't really have a lot of conviction in this i think we need to wait a little bit longer i think that's defensible um but i also would rather be aggressive with a guy like waldrop who has pretty elite arm talent and, and pure stuff i think and, and so far has been really good yeah no i don't think anybody's questioned the stuff with waldrop mm. um and if you're you know if you see him throw strikes like you see him on a good day you're gonna be like oh my god yeah <laughs> it's just like you said it's some of the better just raw stuff or pure stuff in the yeah. minor leagues. He's also only thrown 15 innings 15 for innings, yep. four starts. Um, you know, three of them were in high, mm-hmm. one of them in in low A. But uh, what you're kind of saying is, look, these guys in a certain bucket are all kind of in the same tier of player, right? Like one of them has to be yeah. 14, one of them has to be 19 or mm. 20. But like at the end of the day, like, yeah, these guys are all in the same value band of player Um, and i'll actually pull up our ba grades for this class i have a a spreadsheet that just has kind of the score the adjusted scores the way our ba grades work is you give the overall ba grade you have a risk factor and that kind of gives you a penalty and then you get an adjusted score that factors in both um really from the 15 range all the way down to 50 uh it's the same score so i think you could you could bucket those players however you wanted so I also think, and this isn't, I've used this comparison before. I don't remember if I've said it on this podcast, but I have a lot of, like, I'm reminded a lot of Shane McClanahan with Hurston Waldrop. 
obviously Shane McClanahan is a left-handed pitcher. They're a little bit different, but I think in terms of like overall profile, electric pure stuff, starter reliever questions, landing in a good uh, pitching development organization, I think there are a lot of similarities. Shane McClanahan walked uh, in college. He walked five batters per nine with South Florida, started for really 2017 and 2018, where he was really erratic at times. Hurston Waldrop had, he walked 4.2 per nine with two seasons with Southern Mississippi uh, and one with Florida. Again, only two of those seasons, he was a full-time starter. So I think you could draw a lot of similarities. Again, he walked um, 4.2 per nine. It's just 15 innings, but it's down to 3.6 per nine. So both these players immediately got into their professional organizations and became better strike throwers. Like, I don't think that's um, just random. Like, I think there's something that Tampa Bay and Atlanta can do with their pitchers to help them throw strikes more, whether that's an approach question, whether that's uh, a repertoire question, like simplifying something, whether that's mechanics. Like, I don't, I don't really think it's mechanics. Um, but I just think these teams, there are teams that have track records of getting the most out of their arms. Uh, and, and I just think that if you have confidence in the, like there are very obvious flaws that Hurston Waldrop had at a, as a prospect and, and still has. And if I think that a team is really good at, at helping him work through those and improve that area of his game, like I'm going to like the profile a little bit more. And so I guess just getting some early feedback, both performance wise and, and people that are actually watching him and scouting him. Um, just has me more confident. So that's like what I'm it, with him. Like it could just be low-hanging fruit for the Braves to correct certain issues. Yeah, sure. Yeah, like it, it literally just as simple as saying, hey, you have three really good pitches. Your curveball is not quite as good as your slider. You don't throw it for strikes as often. You don't throw strikes great overall. Why are you throwing this curveball? Any any scenario where you could, where you think that throwing the curveball is good, just throw your slider. And just doing that is going to have him in the zone more often if he's throwing that slider more consistently in the zone for strikes. Like they're like, hey, you have three pitches that can be plus. Why are we messing with this pitch that's not as good as your other as two of your off speed pitches, and you don't throw for strikes more frequently? Like let's just scrap that and focus on these other three pitches. They've done they did the exact same thing with Spencer Strider. They did the same thing with Aegis Strawver. Uh, I believe Owen Murphy. They did the same thing with him. So like they do this with all their pitchers. And it's worked so far. So uh, I've got a lot of confidence in the Braves making him a pretty good pitcher. Well, I think like Bryce Miller with the Mariners is another guy who had control mm. troubles in college and maybe different type of repertoire than Waldrop has, but somebody who, you know, college pitcher with a good stuff who did not have good results in mm. in college, did not throw a lot of strikes. Uh, and then he gets the Mariners. I think, you know, the stuff ticked up too after that, yeah. which I don't know necessarily yeah. know is the, the they did a good job adding stuff to all their guys too. Cause they took George Kirby who's one of the better strike throwers I've ever seen and added three miles per hour to his fastball. And look at him now. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's really impressive what he's been able Again, to. Yeah. Look at, look at Bryce Miller. He walked 4.6 per nine in college. His minor league walk rate is 2.8 per nine, like pretty immediately. He was just walking guys less consistently. So these teams are doing something right with their pitching development. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a certain, like if you're, you know, like Griff McGarry with the, with the Phillies, like when you're at, you know, when you're in the ACC and you're walking a batter per inning, yeah. like pretty consistently, like that's <laughs> yeah, a I don't think level. you can. I don't think you can create miracles, but I think you can, uh, <laughs> you can do a little adjustments, a little yeah. adjustment for a 20 command pitcher is a lot different than, 
an adjustment for a, a 40 command pitcher, right? Yeah. I mean, Jacob Mizierowski is moving with the Brewers, at least not not there yet. I think he's like second in the minors in wild pitches or something like that. Still, yeah. But, <laughs> um, but it's moving in the right direction, at least. I mean, these guys with unbelievable stuff. Like, I, I can see why you would take, a, I don't want to say take a chance. Like, it's <laughs> obvious, like, stuff mm, yeah. that they have. So, um, so I, I, I get it. I get it. Yeah, how about um, other 2023 draftees who are off to too hot or slow starts? Uh, again, like don't want to read too much into this, but we've got a decent sample for a number of these players. There's some guys that I, I really like who have performed well. There's some guys who I really like who have not performed well. Um, I think Colt Emerson has maybe been one of the most impressive players from know, another Mariner, another player from this draft class that has really hit the ground running. He has the second best OPS of any 2023 draftee with more than 50 plate appearances. It's Jace Borfin, who is a six rounder to the Blue Jays, and then Colt Emerson. Um, I think uh, I think Borfin may have passed him. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I said second. He's second to Jace Borfin. Oh, second. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so Colt Emerson has really hit the ground running. Um, Wyatt Langford, again, he, <laughs> I think he is pretty close to just as good as Dylan Cruz. He's He's been awesome so far. We talked about Matt Shaw being good, already getting promoted to double-A. Borfin's been great. Yohani Morales and Enrique Bradfield, two like, first-round talents who have very obvious hickeys and question marks and like they were both polarizing players throughout the process they've been, both been off to really strong starts um have you changed your like are you more or less excited i guess not less for any of these guys but are you more excited about any of these players just given their pro debuts or is it more just kind of nice to see them starting strong and i think enrique bradfield with the orioles is kind of the same right like he's he's you know making a lot of contact drawing a lot of walks and hit he has three doubles in 74 plate appearances i could probably look him up i'm sure at least a couple of those are not or at least one of them is more of a speed based <laughs> extra base hit than uh, him hitting for any kind of <clears throat> power so i think you know and it's he's still in low a right now uh, but uh, you know i i'd say it's about the same same for him i think borofin has been extremely impressive so far that's mm-hmm. one of the more for you know for a guy who is not a, a yep. you know first round pick like these you know most of these other guys we're, we're talking about um that's been impressive and then and then colt emerson like you know like the college guys they go out to especially if, like if they're going out to low a like we expect them to go out and hit mm-hmm. like that's not gonna change a whole lot i don't think for the most part, our evaluations and projections for them. Whereas with high school players, there's a pretty significant difference between yeah. scouting a player in the spring where you're getting, I mean, how, how many at-bats are you getting really like live for, or just overall for a player in the spring? And, and that even then he's using, you know, metal bats facing high school you know just generic high school pitching in ohio or or wherever it is doesn't matter south uh southern california florida texas wherever like he's not facing professional arms at that point uh you know maybe a matchup here or there where it's like yeah colt emerson now we're talking about 60 plate appearances or so Hmm. with wood bats 
uh, against you know you know good not like not everybody's a great arm but he's consistently facing 90 plus uh, velocity and to see what he's done I think has to enhance your your projection for him at this point mm. for me it has I mean I've always thought he was very very advanced hitter very hitterish mm. guy young for the class defensively like I don't know we'll see shortstop second base third base uh, I think there's a decent chance he ends up moving off the position but uh, f- for a guy who you know I, I had a lot of confidence in his bat coming in but at the same time I've said that before about other high school hitters and they go out and mm-hmm. really struggle so to see the performance now in pro ball I think is is important I yeah it does matter I think so too I was always really impressed with his approach as a high schooler just his ability to to recognize pitches and spit on pitches out of the zone so it's not it's not too surprising to me to see that in the lower levels he's got a, a pretty good strike zone discipline 11 walks 14 strikeouts and uh, like you said 66 plate appearances I, I mean the power that he's immediately shown is, is kind of impressive um, I obviously haven't seen uh, all of these extra base hits he has but two home runs and six doubles and 14 games um, one of them was uh one of them was an inside the park home let's run. see there you go so <laughs> don't, well, the, don't... The, the other was pretty uh pretty fun to watch yeah so that that just really everything has looked pretty good with him he's played uh, a little bit of second base shortstop mostly mostly shortstop i would want to be more optimistic about him sticking at shortstop but it sounds like we got him kind of split feedback about whether or not people think he'll stick at that position but yeah really high confidence in the hit tool the fact that he's 17 years old and doing it pretty impressive um that's been good to see yeah that whole team man like him they got lazaro montes at uh maybe lumbering around the outfield but probably (laughs) probably first base long term like him uh like michael arroyo another like really good uh international infielder they signed ty pete is on that team too so like that's that's a fun one. That the hey, matters. your guy Cole yeah. Young was there. I guess you've replaced Cole Young with Cole Emerson for uh, really really exciting Mariners shortstops that you like. The college yeah. hit tools. Yeah, hitterish hitterish left-handed hitting shortstops. Yeah, nice little pipeline of those guys. And and then really quickly before we move into some players that have maybe been a little slower to start, Johanny Morales. He was a guy who I was really kind of in the exact opposite how I had talked about. I really like Cole Emerson's approach and pitch recognition. I think Johanny Morales, his approach and pitch recognition, really every time I saw him, and I think I was probably a victim of really bad personal looks with him because I always saw him when he was performing poorly and never saw him when he was performing well. Like with USA Baseball, when he was on college, the college national team, he was not good uh, during the trials phase of that roster. And then he he led the team in hitting um, when they actually went to Europe and played in, in live games and tournaments. He was the best hitter. So I clearly saw the wrong week from him. But I just never saw him pick up the ball, pick up spin, recognize spin, stay out of the – like like hold back on pitches out of the zone. He just really chased a lot. And I had a lot of skepticism about his ability to recognize pitches. Um, and, and so like the pure hitting ability was really iffy for me personally when I saw him. But – Again, it's it's low A, high A. It's not a huge amount of games, but he is walking quite a bit. It's a 15.8% walk rate in high A. Um, just the strikeout to walk has been maybe more eye-opening to me than the overall numbers, which are quite good. He's hitting 372, 446, 540. Um, no home runs, but he's got 13 doubles. But just seeing those 14 walks, 24 strikeouts, 
for Yohandi. And again, more extensive look, 130 plate appearances. It's on a ton of time, and it is lower levels in the minors for a guy who's playing in a really good college conference. Um, so I'm not ready to say, like, oh, he he's, uh, just has a great approach now. But it is encouraging to me to see that um, for a guy who has really impressive raw tools, physicality, athleticism, arm strength, raw power. Um, so that that's a fun win, and I'll, I'll be curious to see, like, how aggressively he gets pushed and how he does in a full pro season. Um, but that's one that I'm kind of, like, uh, my eyebrows are raising a little bit from that. Yeah, he's uh, he's been good hmm. so far. You know who I think is uh, kind of like an interesting sleeper type pick too out of the on the college side has been uh, uh, Scott Bandura, hmm. who the Giants took in the seventh round. Um, he was a guy, you know, seventh like I said, seventh round pick, Princeton, uh, Ivy League guy um, like the there's just a lot of things to like between the size the athleticism and and the power hmm. that's in there and I mean so far I mean between again like rookie ball low a like uh, not like the toughest competition but it is you know definitely a step up from the Ivy League 294 427 456. Uh, almost as many walks as as strikeouts, uh, and there's definitely power mm. in there. Um, you know, six four, one ninety, um, left-handed yeah, he, hitter. He was a guy we had on the five hundred, but he was not at all highly ranked. We had him three thirty eight on our final um, five hundred. I think he wrote his report and did a lot of the work on him during the spring. Mm-hmm. Ben out of the north northeast, so yeah, yeah and a guy who and that's I mean that's the thing is he had like you know obviously like no twenty twenty season, but like. 2022 uh not not a great or, or he didn't really play much i should say uh, but even then like summer leagues what well, wasn't that great uh playing there but he had a really good season this spring and it seems like it's early on at least carrying over uh into into pro bowl yeah that is a good one uh, i'm trying to scan through see if there are any other Lower, I mean, Jace Borfin, who we mentioned, uh, he was a sixth rounder, and the fact that he's one of the best hitters uh, from this class so far in the minor league careers is pretty impressive. Uh, Mac Horvath is another guy who's been hitting well. Braylon Wimmer actually is an interesting one with the Rockies, eighth rounder. He's played well. I don't know if he's played anything outside of just rookie ball, um, so maybe be a little cautious with that one. Uh, yeah, how about guys who are struggling out? Because there are two guys who I really like who are not performing well, and it's making me feel sad um, because they're personal cheeseball types. Um, and then a few other guys who I'm, I'd say, more skeptical than where we had them on our draft board. Like me personally, compared to the industry, I was a little more skeptical. Um, and so I want you to give me some confidence in two and then um, just reaffirm my biases with the other two. <laughs> so Sammy Safura. I think he was a favorite of, from both of us. He He's really kind of scuffled out of the gate. Um, second round pick of the Reds. We had him in kind of that like 25 to 40-ish range on the draft board. He's only played 12 games in rookie ball, but it's a 71 average, 212 OBP, 191 slug, 23 Ks to eight walks. Uh, hasn't been the greatest start for him. Um, who are the other players that I've mentioned here? Nazan Zanatello, who is one who... This is one that, like, really impressive athlete. I was always a little skeptical of the hit tool with him. 
he's hitting 158, 319, 237. Um, so he's struggled a little bit. Um, and then I also have down here Jacob Gonzalez, Blake Mitchell, and Chase Davis. So all pretty prominent names, uh, names that everyone who's listening to the podcast are going to be pretty familiar with. All these guys have gone off pretty slowly. I think of these five, in terms of like my excitement for them, Blake Mitchell and Sammy Stafuro would have been guys that I was like probably higher. Certainly Blake Mitchell, I feel like I'm higher on than anyone in the BA office. Sammy Stafura, both you and me have liked quite a bit personally. Uh, Jacob Gonzalez, just the way he swung the bat, I was always a little bit um, kind of skeptical just because the setup, the swing is a little bit odd. Um, Zanatello again, athletic freak. Uh, so I think Gonzalez and Zanatello, I was probably a little bit lower on than the industry. And then Chase Davis, probably right right around where we had him. I, I was pretty in line with him. But these are all guys who are slow out of the gate. Any any massive concerns with them or just, again, like we're talking about these other players, can't get too, can't go too crazy with the smaller samples. I think the one thing in particular that I look at for the especially for the high school hitters going into rookie ball is the strikeouts. Like as, if we're looking for red flags and it's been 53 plate appearances for Stafura, which is not a huge sample, but it's also a 43% strikeout rate, which yeah, now I'm not like writing him off by any means, but like that's, that's a concern. Um, at that level if if the strikeouts you know if the overall slash line wasn't great but the strikeout the strikeouts were lower like he's mm. still putting the bats the ball consistently then it wouldn't be as much of a concern but um i think it's definitely um a red flag right now um what you mentioned uh yeah zanatello that pick was more of a surprise for me or at least the maybe the i think it was a three million dollar Bonus yeah, the bonus the bonus was maybe even more Sox. surprising than the the pick itself was. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, even in the second round, I was a little bit surprised. I think, like you said, I mean, very good athlete, very good tools. You know, play some premium position. I, I've seen him play good defense in center field. Uh, I've seen him at shortstop. I, I I don't know. I think he could play either one. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly a lot of athleticism and tools and positional value to to like there um so that one you know to see him struggling a little bit in rookie ball not you know super surprising right now more of like a a long-term bet on like being able to develop uh some of the the you know i think he's still kind of scratching the surface of his potential so um we'll see uh blake mitchell again like i to your point about well, the walks, the walks are pretty good with him. Yeah, with uh, with Zanatello. No, no, no. With, you, you'd mentioned Blake Mitchell. I thought you were going to him ne- next. Uh, he's one oh, yeah, yeah. struck out so far. It's 17 walks, 14 strikeouts in the complex league. So 32% walk rate, 26% strikeout rate. I imagine that that's more encouraging, the fact that the OBP is good, even though um hasn't really done much in terms of batted balls. Uh, I mean, the strikeouts are still a little bit... Uh, come on, good, come on, you know. Ben. Give me something here. It's, give me, again, give me Blake it, Mitchell. <laughs> it goes back to what we were saying before of like, like, yeah, I still like Blake Mitchell. I think he's a not as much as me prospect. I don't, I don't think I would take him with the eighth overall pick in the draft, given that, you know, like we said, 
Matt Shaw was on the board. Oh, there's a whole bunch of other opportunity costs to True. players who... If you are going to bring up Zanatello's bonus, though, it's worth noting that Blake Mitchell did have the, the second biggest haircut of the first round there at that at number eight pick. So at least in terms of, of the amount you're signing him for, presumably the, the idea was to cut a deal there and spread it around. Whether or not you like that strategy is, is one thing, but definitely a factor. I do not. The, the, <laughs> the, the Chase Davis, though, like that's, that's one where I'm a little bit more surprised because mm-hmm. um, I thought, I mean, he had, a, he had an outstanding season and yep. it's, it's not like he, he cut down on his strikeouts in college like there's definitely power in there mm. and it's just been kind of a like i thought he'd come out and move pretty quickly mm. uh, and hit right away and that just has not been the case yeah i don't know that i ever thought of him as a quick mover i was always really intrigued with the the approach um or the the strikeouts improvement that he showed this spring it was a pretty dramatic improvement, especially when you factor in his first two years in college, his high school pedigree. Like he was always a guy that struck out a lot. And so I didn't know how to fully, I guess it was more for me. It wasn't like the 2023 college version of Chase Davis wasn't like the player that I expected him to be moving forward. It was more of like, I felt more confident about his ability to cut down those strikeouts that he had shown as a high schooler in his first two years in college. Like it was, it was almost like somewhere in the middle of that 2023 season and what he had previously shown. So I don't know that I ever expected him to be a quick mover. And I'm also probably less high on just like the swing mechanics itself. But the fact that he has the tools, the athleticism, the arm strength, the raw power that he has and showed some ability to make an adjustment was exciting to me. Um, but I was very curious to see like what the strikeout rate, what the walk rate would look like in college, how the approach, how that approach shift would would kind of bear itself out in pro ball with a wood bat. Um, but I know a lot of people like were really, really all in on him just because he grazed out well analytically. The batter ball profile was good. The tools were good. Like he just looks great on the field. There are a lot of things I really like about him, but I think he's still going to have to probably prove it in pro ball for just me to feel confident in like the pure hit tool there. Yeah, and then Jacob Gonzalez, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I share the... I share the concerns that you have with the mm. with the swing, um, but it's, yeah, if you guys it's, haven't it's weird... seen, if you haven't seen Jacob Gonzalez swing, like maybe just look it up and and watch. But it's a very unorthodox style swing. It's like an open setup with the lower half, with his upper half kind of tucked in, um, his like back right shoulder pointed towards the pitcher. It was very pull heavy in college. I looked into his just like splits to see how he did on outer third pitching. And his production versus outer third pitching in college was pretty good. Um, but he was pulling a lot of those balls. And I always kind of wondered like, there are a few instances where you'd see like a quality breaking ball or a good velocity on the outer third where he couldn't kind of just get his hands out and pull it to the, uh, to the right field side. And I always wondered just how that approach would work when he was facing better pitching who could more more seriously challenge him on the outer third now again he was always a guy who who took walks showed a good approach um his his swing decisions were strong in general he made a lot of contact within the zone so he like graded out really well analytically but just the mechanics of the swing how it worked he's like almost stepping out and like moving to first base while he's swinging a lot of the time and that always just was very off-putting to me (laughs) so 
I don't know. I'm curious to see how it works. Like there are plenty of players who do it in in different ways at the big league level. So I don't think just the mechanics. Like I, I think I said a lot of this about Jace Young a year ago. Like I wasn't really phased with how he did it, but for whatever reason, the way Jacob Gonzalez does it, it makes me feel like I have a few more questions. So I don't know. I think it definitely leaves him more vulnerable to um, for pitchers to be able to exploit some of the holes that it creates at the mm. same time he's been able to have so much success up to yeah. this point because he has very good strike zone judgment and barrel control mm. so he's still able to put the bat to the ball so like even now he's like the overall slash line is not great and the lack of any sort of extra base damage is concerning but he's not striking out all that much Mm. Um, so sometimes it's like, man, like you go again, we'll, you know, do more work in the off season. Cause sometimes the, like, the, you know, sometimes these guys are just run down yeah. by the end of a season too. Like that's not uncommon to hear from college players who, um, you know, typically are not playing this long, mm. uh, this late into the year. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll see, but yeah, so far not, not like a not like a huge red flag, but definitely not <laughs> not an encouraging sign. Yeah, the fact that he he has always really shown a, a strong walk rate is encouraging to me, just for like a floor of production. I mean, he never had an OBP less than four hundred five. I think was his lowest in college across three seasons, and even in twenty twenty two, he had a spell where he was really not hitting too well. He was he was consistently getting on base at a high clip, just because he's got uh, such a good eye. So as he progresses up the minors if that walk rate um, kind of maintains itself, I think that'll be encouraging. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> On the high school side though, for, for the good, you got Walker Jenkins doing well, Max yeah. Clark doing well. It's good to, good to see from, from that twins and, and tigers. Yeah. And maybe, overall. maybe you're thinking, well, duh, those guys are going to, uh, clearly they're going to be good. They were the elite high school players, but then you got Drew Jones who <laughs> got quite a bit of questions. So it is still nice to see, the top end players really perform, but both those guys have been really impressive. Really, all the guys in the top five outside of schemes in terms of results have been really, really impressive. I like throughout the first round and even the back of the first round, like those like Bryce Eldridge mm. right now, Giants first round pick, and he hasn't pitched yet, but like man, his bat looks outstanding. Power, uh not a crazy <clears throat> amount of swing and miss for like a six seven teenager. Um yeah, he's got pretty, stupid power. Five home runs in twenty-one games. Like, <laughs> yeah, athletic, he hit some like, monstrous balls to center field, to the opposite field. Yeah, six seven two twenty three, huge. I'm very curious to see how the two way experiment works with him because I really, I would prefer just letting him hit and, and letting him get those reps, focus on hitting. I'm I'm more in on him as a hitter. I think the upside is more exciting as a hitter. Do you just um, hate fun? You would you would prefer to see him only no, hit? No, I don't. I don't hate fun. I just think that I think it's harder to catch up with abs than it is with with pitching. Like I think that it's very low likelihood that he turns out to be some sort of Otani, where he's actually doing both at the big league level. I think that, and if I think that, like if I think it's unlikely that he's actually a legit two way guy. I would rather go with the side that I think he has more upside on. And I think that's hitter. So that all of those factors lead me to just want him to hit. But like, I do think he's a good pitching prospect. I think he would have been a top two round 
prospect just as a pitcher alone, maybe. Um, so but why yeah, not? You, so why wouldn't he do both? I mean, you have a six foot seven nah. athletic right handed pitcher. Look, look how much better nineties manipulated no, secondary. Like, nah. I mean, look how much better Paul Skeens got as a pitcher when he stopped hitting and just focused on pitching at the college level. I think it's a grind to do either of these going from high school to pro ball. I think when you're adding when you're adding the two way factor, that's a ton more work. Uh, your body can't recover as well. You're trying to adjust to each level. Like hitting is hard enough when you're just trying to hit. And I think adding on the pitching just makes it even more difficult. Like there's a reason why guys like Mason Wynn and Bubba Chandler have stopped the two-way thing. Like Brendan McKay, his the reason why he wasn't able to make it maybe isn't directly related to talent. Like there was some injury stuff there. But just the fact that Otani's the only one doing it, I don't think that I don't think that we're just going to be running out a lot of two-way guys in in the majors anytime soon. I don't think we're going to be running out a lot of them, but I think Otani, I, I would hope, would open people's eyes to <sighs> say, hey, like, let's not give up on yeah. a player who has two-way skill. Like, there's not a lot of these guys who I would say that about. Like, there's some, yeah, like, there's some guys who just can throw hard mm. and, like, you know, can be a two-way guy maybe like in college a little bit, yeah. right? Coming out of a bullpen if if necessary, mm-hmm. but like not really in pro ball. But there are more guys who I think could do the two-way thing or at least should be given the opportunity to develop in in that role. And I, I think I think he's I think he's one of them. Yeah, well, I I think he's a legit pitcher, but. I just, I just don't, I just want, I want him to succeed as a hitter, <laughs> but I, I guess I'll take the, uh, I'll take the role of being the Debbie Downer here. Yeah. I don't want, I don't want to see the two-way thing. Everyone wants to see the two-way thing. I just really, I'm really excited about that left-handed power, man. It's crazy power. He, he could is, be, uh, oh, who was the comp? He got a comp thrown on him that I thought was really good. It was a Matt Olson comp actually. Like if, if you could get a Matt Olson Matt with Olson. Bryce Eldridge, oh, that's awesome. Like one I thought of the, you were gonna, I thought you were gonna say like a Cody Bellinger for uh, no, I think I heard Matt Olson. Uh, the swing, I'll, I'll have to look at it again and see. But I really liked the Matt Olson comp that was thrown at him. I think that's a good one. So and he's he's. I mean, we're talking about like guys we're adding to our top one hundred. Like I don't know, man. He he might be. Yeah. Although if you want to take away his pitching, I might be keeping <laughs> him out of the. Hey, I think if if we take away his pitching, I think a lot of guys will have. Uh, maybe they'll be more excited about it. Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> Uh, but the, the good news is we're both excited about Bryce Eldridge in just different ways, Ben. Yeah, him, and then the other high school guy too, who's kind of or like one other high school first round pick who's mm. been good is uh, Aiden Miller. Who yeah, he has been. It's just and, and it's good to see because he, he barely really played, barely played in the spring. But mm. if you followed him the summer before or the several summers before, like any time in his life, like he's always been one of the best hitters for. Yeah for his for that 2023 class so for him i see him like go and hit right away too absolutely for him i thought like after walker jenkins probably like the best hit power combination in the high school class i don't know if there are any other players for you that you'd lump in but Mm -hmm. i was really always impressed with the approach uh the raw power the bat speed yeah really impressive bummer that speed yeah ton of bat speed he's hitting 368 500 447 more walks than strikeouts 48 plate appearances between rookie ball and a few games uh, at low A with Clearwater. So, yeah, I think that that's a great call. 
it wouldn't have surprised me at all if he just was got off to a really slow start because he didn't play much at all this spring in Florida, dealt with a hand injury. Um, but that's a good one. I, I almost forget about Aiden Miller a little bit just because of the spring. He was just never playing, so we weren't getting consistent updates. But right. his, his bat is pretty special. Um, he's also played a little bit of shortstop, which the fact that he was selected as a shortstop was a surprise to me. Um, is that surprising to you still? Like I, I always thought it was like, oh, is he going to be a good enough defender to stick at third? Not is he going to play shortstop? I, w- I would love to be uh, proven wrong and see him play shortstop yeah. in the big leagues. And well, then, I'm with you on that one. <laughs> uh, just completely break my mind because, yeah, I mean, I think he's I, I, yeah, very, very surprised. I think he... I think he ultimately will be third base, maybe corner outfield. So to see him at shortstop is very surprising. It's, but you know, I, I think he has the tools to to stick at third base. Um, yeah, Braden Braden Taylor was the other player who was selected as a shortstop, but he hasn't played any shortstop. So I don't know what that was about. He's only played third base with the Rays. Um, but Aiden Miller being selected <laughs> as a shortstop and also only playing shortstop is. Shocking to me. I mean, he has five errors already, and it's a sub nine hundred fielding percentage for whatever that's worth. Well, um, they might need a shortstop, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe. I guess it's not going to hurt him. I, I don't think playing shortstop at all will hurt his chances at, at third base. Speaking of how we can hurt our players and player development, <laughs> can't be anything but good for him. He's going to get more balls. Whatever. There are like I know like teams have like teams have told me they've, they're like yeah we I, like they're like we're going to play this guy at shortstop. We know he's a third baseman. Not talking about Miller specifically, just talking mm-hmm. about somebody else in the past. Like, yeah, we like especially like internationally. Like, yeah, we signed this guy. We know he's going to be. You know, we know he's going to play shortstop long term, but we want him to play shortstop like early on in the minor leagues, so he you know works works harder at his defense and mm. works works harder at maintaining his body because this guy has a maybe a proclivity to get a little bit uh, <laughs> wide. Yeah. Right. So like if we, if we play him at shortstop, we think this is going to be what's best for his defensive development long term and the best, like keep him in the best shape yeah. uh, going forward, even though, yeah, we, we know he's not going to play shortstop. Was the there any, was there any comments about like just the, the amount of reps and chances you get against live, um, like live fielding chances at shortstop because I, w- I wonder if that's a factor like just looking at mm. so Braden Taylor has played 128 innings all have come at third base he has 39 total chances defensively Ada Miller has played 83 innings all at shortstop he has 33 chances so like I'm sure the numbers would bear it out like in my mind I was like oh you get more balls as a shortstop I wonder if that's a factor too and how much that's I, th- I think that could help you improve just like adjusting to the speed of the game just getting more more reps even if that's out of position like i I really don't think the change from shortstop to third i mean you're going down the defensive spectrum so it shouldn't hurt you if you're if you're playing short when you really probably aren't a shortstop so that's fascinating i've never really thought about like strategically putting someone who you don't believe is a shortstop at the position if you have the innings for him there that's i like that idea a lot yeah i mean and and now without the short season level though it's you know, it's, it gets a little bit more constrained for like, yeah, like guys just have to move around a little bit more. Like you, you only have, so, so there's only one shortstop position uh, and there's just a, you know, reduced amount of teams that you have in your organization now compared to a couple of years ago. So, um, yeah. 
unfortunate. Hey, defensive versatility never hurt anyone. Yeah, no, I think we'll still see that in the, you know, the complex leagues, the DSL, that kind of stuff still. Absolutely. All right. Any other players that you want to mention that are performing or not performing? Uh, I think, it, uh, that's it. Yeah. Let's move it on. All right. Uh, we had two lists drop for 2024 classes um, recently, Ben. Uh, Jeff and Peter dropped their top 50 Cape prospects. I had the top 10 USA Baseball Collegiate National Team prospects. Um, did you have any, any thoughts on those two lists? Because for me, again, I don't, I don't want to be the huge Debbie Downer on this podcast, but it was notable, like the talent on these lists compared to last year, the drop-off or perceived drop-off. But there are still some fun players. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, JJ Weatherholt in in particular with West Virginia. I mean, yeah. you put him number one on the list. You know, I like my my hitterish guys, and he mm. seems to certainly kind of fit that fit that bill. Yeah, he definitely does. I think he was pretty clearly the best pure hitter on this team. And what impressed me the most was maybe like the strength in his wrists and forearms and just how loud the ball came off the bat for him. There was a number of home runs that he hit that were just kind of eye-opening. The swing is very fluid. It's very Mm -hmm. clean from the left side, kind of slightly uphill. Like he's clearly looking to do damage. The swing decisions were consistently strong. Like I have a lot of conviction in him as as a hitter. I didn't really get the greatest look of him defensively. And as a runner, when I was watching Team USA, he was dealing with a hamstring injury. He did steal 36 bases this spring um, with pretty solid efficiency. And I've heard in the past that he's a plus runner. So I haven't personally seen it, and I'm curious to see him more defensively and as a runner. But if you get that hitting ability with some power, with speed, uh, it's a pretty solid package. I think the one thing that stands out about this draft class is there are a lot of second basemen. There are not a lot of like shortstop or third basemen that you get as excited about. Like an, a number of our top 15 prospects, there's a chance their best defensive position is second base, which is just kind of a bit odd. Um, I would prefer some more shortstops. But yeah, Weatherholt was really impressive in the limited time that I got to see him. Yeah, what about you got two two-way players on the list, your, your favorite two-way mm-hmm. guys? Yeah. Uh, Braden Montgomery, who was at Stanford, now at Texas A&M, uh, Jack Caglianone, Florida first baseman, left-handed pitcher. Mm. Or, I mean, I guess I already know your answer, but are, <laughs> are these guys two-way guys no. in pro ball? No. I mean, I don't think so. Braden Montgomery hasn't really pitched much in college. He's been used kind of out of the bullpen with Stanford. I think. There is some talk about him pitching more with Texas A&M, and maybe that was part of the reason why um, he kind of sought out that transfer because he has legitimate loud stuff on the mound. Like there was a there was a time where I thought he was more of a pitcher than a hitter, but he's been pretty impressive offensively. Uh, he was another guy we talked about Chase Davis improving the plate discipline. He did that pretty tremendously um, from his freshman year to his sophomore year. The walk rate went up 10 points from just over 6% to 16%. He cut the strikeout rate. He hit 17 home runs. Uh, he's big and physical, probably has one of the better arm tools in the class. Uh, I'm struggling to to think of who else would kind of challenge him for that. It's near top of the scale if it's not top of the scale. 
um, just an absolute cannon from mm-hmm. right field. I think that translates really well to the mound as well. He's been in the upper 90s. Um, so I'm curious to see like what sort of role he takes on at Texas A&M, if it's like a legit two-way or if he's just one of these players. Um, who was taken – who did the Marlins take um, – or not the Marlins. The Braves took. Um, I'm blanking on his name. Out of Nebraska, who basically was a shortstop and just kind of ran. Oh, in. Schwellenbach. Yeah, Schwellenbach. Like, like is Montgomery just going to be this primary hitter who comes in and, and shuts the door? Is he going to start? Like, how often? I'm not sure, uh, but I think he has the talent to do both. Like Jack Cagliano,ne was a legit two way player with Florida. He was everyday first base DH type for them hitting behind Wyatt Langford in the lineup, led the country in home runs, uh, Sunday starter, big physical frame, six foot five, 245 pounds up to 99 from the left side. Um, obviously like the tools and the stuff he has is really loud. I just think it's a lot more, it's a lot more raw to me than the production maybe suggests. Um, he was a golden spike semifinalist, but I have pretty big questions with, the swing and miss, the strikeout rate was always concerning. The swing this summer really didn't look great. The performance wasn't great with Team USA. It's just like a long path. It's an aggressive approach. He expands his own. But he does have huge power. Like it, it might be 70 raw power when he connects. He sends the ball a long way. And it's almost similar on the mound. Like he throws really hard. Um, but sprays the ball quite a bit. You can catch him on a bad day where it's just pretty erratic overall. He didn't pitch a lot with Team USA, and I think that makes sense. He threw a ton of innings um, for Florida, um, pitched deep into the season, obviously, as they went to the College World Series. So I have, I think, and, and this is probably true of a lot of players in this class, I just think there are a lot of question marks with with Jack that I want to be answered, although the tools and the upside, you could maybe make a case that it's, it's the most exciting in this class overall, like if he's able to kind of paper over some of the real warts in his profile. He's he's more of a hitter as a pro prospect, you think? I think probably most people think that. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if there were people that thought he was more of a pitcher just because you don't often see left-handers throwing 99 at, at this age. Um, and if, if you're a scout who just is really down on him as a hitter, I could see you preferring him as a pitcher. But I do think that probably most in the industry like him as a hitter more. Yeah, it's like you said, big, big arm strength from the left side. Also walked 55 in 74 and two thirds, hit 14 guys, 10 wild pitches. Like, obviously, that's uh, gotta, gotta get rid of Yeah, more, of a, more then, of a thrower than a pitcher so far. <laughs> yeah. And then offensively, just gigantic, gigantic power and production that comes with it, too. Like, he's like 33 home runs, like you said, but. Uh, mm. Like this, like you said, this swing is going to draw some question marks, and it is a very aggressive approach. Like you're not going to get a lot of walks, uh, or at least there have not been <laughs> so far to like yeah. offset yeah. some of the uh, swing and miss that's going to come with that to to help amplify his on base percentage. So he seems like, I mean, like you said, obviously a very like a lot of talent and a lot of tools, but also somebody where like the uh, like where he'll where he like would project to go in the draft today versus his fame, mm. I think is probably a bigger gap maybe 
I think that's between. definitely the case. Like, I think there are probably people who think Jack Caglione is like this very clear top prospect in the class. He he certainly might be the most famous, but I don't think he's viewed that way from from the industry. Like, I think there are a lot of players who are in a similar range to him. Yeah, whereas like a like like Nick Kurtz, for example, yeah. at Wake Forest, who's yeah. also like you know first Sig- base significantly less sexy in terms of like tools and the two way thing. But I think significantly more polished in terms of being like a pure hitter, good athlete, good defender at first base, probably can play outfield and, and do it pretty reasonably. Great approach, high walk rate, doesn't chase much, doesn't swing and miss a ton, has like pretty similar power uh, sort of production. I think I think Nick Kurtz was the best hitter on that Wake Forest team and Brock Wilkin um, was just drafted in the first round and is a pretty good hitter in his own right. And I think, I think that Nick Kurtz is like, I don't know if I'd say significantly, but I think he's a better pure hitter on top of having like similar physicality and, and power. Yeah. Anything else jump out for you for doing the watching the USA guys this year? Um, yeah, I would say I would say Griff O'Farrell was really impressive. I think he's maybe the opposite of, of Caglione, like in the sense that he really doesn't have any obvious tools that jump out. Like there aren't there isn't a clear carrying tool with O'Farrell. Virginia shortstop, um, just steady Eddie player, does everything really well, solid approach offensively, doesn't have a ton of power. You could see the ball kind of dies off his bat uh, on fly balls, more of this like gap-to-gap line drive hitter. Um, Doesn't have the best range defensively, but like saying all these things, he doesn't have huge power. I I think there are plays in the hole that you probably want a big league shortstop to make that he doesn't really have the arm strength to make. But he also does everything well as a consistent performer. Um, good approach, good OBP. He makes all the plays on balls that he can get to. Um, pretty quick exchange. Just like the steady Eddie type that isn't sexy. I think it's probably like you feel more confident in him producing for college than maybe you are about like him being this like top of the class draft pick. So he's a player that I'm curious to see if he comes out next offseason looking a little bit stronger maybe he's a little bit faster just one of these guys who who has a really good offseason the tools tick up a little bit um that seems to happen more often with the high school players than than the college players but it's always possible i think he's just maybe one of the more safe well-rounded profiles in the class and he's been pretty consistent for in terms of production both with virginia with with team usa so i think he's just one of those players that you feel good about everything that he does, even if there's nothing that really blows you away. Right. So yeah, I liked then, him. Yeah. In the Cape, you had uh, Travis Pazana taking mm. home MVP, another second baseman, uh, Oregon State second baseman. Um, him versus like Weatherholt, are they are they similar types of players? I mean, do both of these guys project to be like top ten? picks in in this draft you think yeah right now i think so like we have them i think we've got them both top three i think we have kurtz bazana jj weatherholt i I was telling jeff and peter and and just the general draft team at ba like i'm really curious to see how we compare and contrast these two second basemen and then i would even throw siever king on that list as well who um, wake forest yeah yeah, wake forest transfer siever king we had him trying to see where we had him on our yeah, he was number three on the USA list. Uh, I'm not sure if he played enough to qualify for the Cape list. I think he did. Yeah, number five on the Cape list as well. So pretty pretty well regarded. Um, 
in line with all these players. Actually, on the Cape list, all three of these second basemen were top five. I think it just depends how much they actually got to play there. Tra- Bazana played the most games in the Cape. As you said, he was the Cape MVP. Um, the end zone contact rate for Bazana is really impressive. Uh, the bat speed from him is good. Like I, I like the swing of Weatherholt a little bit more than Bazana just based on video I've seen. Um, but he seems like a pretty twitchy athlete, really impressive baseball IQ. He's also a runner who can steal bases. So they seem like pretty similar profiles, even though I think the bodies are maybe a little bit different. Um, so I do think these could go either direction, like depending on what they do next year. I don't feel super strongly convicted in either either way with them. Um, and I think Seaver King has a chance to really jump into this conversation if he's not there already, uh, just given he might have been the most like the biggest up arrow college player from the summer, just with how impressed scouts were with his tools, with his hitting ability. Um and like looking at the production he had with with Wingate as a Division two player, he had pretty tremendous performance, hit over four hundred. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how he does with Wake Forest, where he plays defensively. I got to see him at third base. He's played some second base. Um, he's a double plus runner at times. Doesn't have huge power. Uh, so all these guys are like kind of fun second basemen who are like have these hit forward profiles and just lining them up is probably going to be tricky next year, but I'm excited to see how they, how they kind of perform and what scouts think of them. So those are maybe the three most interesting players in this class right now for me. Yeah. Seeing King, I mean, like you said, we already had him ranked pretty high on our draft rankings coming into, or maybe the cake league already started a little bit yeah i think uh, so at that point but it seems like he's really helped solidify that like you said coming from mm. d2 program doing it in the cape gotta help enhance your conviction in his hitting ability even more it seems like he's one of the big or somewhat bigger up up arrow guys yeah. uh, were there other arrow up type players who were in the cape who really helped their help their stock or raise their profile this year i mean cameron smith was was pretty high and i think just what he showed as a hitter was impressive because cameron smith unlike some of the players that we've talked about is like extremely physical and has really loud tools i think there are really high expectations for him at florida state this past year he was inconsistent this spring the chase rate was aggressive the swing and miss was concerning but it seems like the approach, the swing decisions, all of that really improved this summer. Um, and I don't know if you can like say that he's he's certainly like a changed hitter now. I think there are questions about like what is the quality of the pitching on the Cape in any given year. There's a lot more movement on the rosters just given where the draft is in the calendar. Um, the fact that so many pitchers just shut things down in the summer. So you can, you could question like the quality of the pitching and maybe say, Oh, that's, that's why he performed really well. Like the ACC competition he was facing with Florida state might've been consistently better, but I do think it's impressive. Um, what he did, he hit 347, 406, 575, six some runs, um, chance to be like a pretty good third baseman, decent third baseman. He's got a plus arm. If he can get a little bit better, kind of with his range, with his movement, with his glove work. Uh, I think he has the tools to stick at that position. So he's encouraging. I, I, there are a lot of people who think he has really explosive upside. So if he's able to like translate that offensive improvement 
to next spring, I think he could really jump up boards quite a bit. Like we have him ranked fairly well now, but he could be a guy who we're talking more about in like this top five, top 10 range if he performs well. Yeah. So that'd be one. Um, just kind of scanning down, see if there's another one. Um, Cameron Hill seemed fascinating. Left-handed pitcher with Katuit on the Cape list. He ranked number eight. Uh, he was at Georgia Tech, and it, it seemed like the performance was really night and day compared to what he did with Georgia Tech. He really struggled this spring um, in terms of just like the runs he allowed, the strike throwing. It sounded like everything was better this summer. It's low 90s fastball. Um, generated whiffs with the heater, with a slider, with a changeup. Um, his feel for all those pitches seemed quite a bit better, and he's six foot six, athletic, and left-handed. So that's a lot of traits to like. I think there's still probably going to be a lot of questions about if he's able to replicate that over a full season in the spring. And there have been a number of pitchers who just haven't really fully translated that, but but some who have. So I think he's one. He's one for me who I wasn't thinking of a ton entering the summer and then just seeing like what he did looking at some video seeing what what peter and jeff thought about him like he was super fascinating to me and i've heard some interesting things from scouts about him as well too so if he continues this has a strong fall comes out next spring and looks good like there are a lot of things to like there based on what he did so that'd be a pitcher that i would name who's who's pretty fascinating yeah i was gonna ask about pitching or just pitching overall between the cape or usa or, or just anybody for the draft next year from the collegiate side because i remember watching mm-hmm. team usa the summer before and it was like you had paul Skeens, rhett louder herson waldrip and i mean even like you know maybe beyond those guys and even waldrip like we talked about didn't have a great season at florida but is there anybody who matches any of those three guys or just anybody no. who looks like a anybody who could be like a first round pick or i mean there will be a first round pick i assume from the college side on the pitching but i mean as of right now there is no there is certainly no one who has the chase dolander status um the status that dolander had a year ago at this time the 24 class right now looks like a lot of a lot of pitchers with stuff who are relievers now who are probably going to transition to starter roles or who are college starters now who have a lot of reliever risk in general, or they're starters who don't have the sort of premium. Like there's not one pitcher. I think you can name that has the, the combination of like safe starter profile with elite pure stuff. Like maybe the best example of like, I'm kind of just scanning down the list to see, like maybe that's just Drew Beam at Tennessee, who's been one of the most consistent starters uh, of anyone in this class. And he does have a fastball that's like pretty regularly into the mid nineties. Like he might be your best pure, one of your best pure pitchers and starters, but like other guys who are at the top of the list, Brody Brecht is our top ranked pitcher right now. His stuff is insane, but he also has really – he's really erratic. Um, I think Michael Massey, similarly, like really impressive with Team USA. The fastball is one of the best fastballs in college baseball. It's like this invisible with crazy ride, comes from behind his ear. The slider's good too, but he's been a pure reliever so far. Does he transition to a starter role? Is he able to uh, kind of maintain that stuff in a starter role? Chase Burns maybe is the most famous name or one of the most famous names in this class on the pitching side, just given his 
uh, work with Tennessee. He's going to pitch with Wake Forest next spring. Probably as a starter at the college level. Spent some time piggybacking with um, Chase Dolander this past spring. He's got pretty loud stuff. Like, not pretty loud. He's got very loud stuff. Fastball that gets up to 100. Slider that gets up to 90. Another one, like, long arm action. Erratic at times. The performance has been good. He's pretty overpowering at the college level, but... Yeah, there's just a lot of questions with strikes. Hagen Smith, same deal. Really good stuff from the left side. When you see him on a good day, you're like, man, he, he's throwing like mid to upper 90s fastball, pretty vicious slider, but other days it's super erratic. Uh, Thatcher Hurd, kind of a similar deal. He was inconsistent at times, has really good stuff. Carter Holton, same sort of deal. Like, they're just a lot of pitchers. And then you get down to the guys you feel confident as as starters. Josh Hartle, he had a tremendous season as a sophomore with Wake Forest. But also was serving up batting practice with, with Team USA this summer. And there are questions about how many bats is he going to miss. So I, I just think there are a lot of pitchers who are interesting. Uh, someone needs to come out and really establish themselves and take the reins of like the top pitcher in the class. Because right now you kind of have this big mix of guys who are fascinating. But no one that you feel, no one that I feel super confident in that's going to be the first pitcher off the board on the college side. Yeah, I hope it. Uh, I hope it is Brody Brecht with uh, yeah. Iowa, because man, his stuff is absolutely filthy. But like you said, gotta can't be walking seven <laughs> per nine. Yeah, seventy-seven innings. He struck at one hundred nine, and he walked sixty-one. Like I, wa- I was watching him from the open side with USA Baseball, and th- th- there would be an inning where the batters just look silly facing him and then the next inning he came out and was just spiking the ball over throwing the ball to the backstop like he's got to throw more strikes obviously so you know there's a lot of questions it will be very fun to cover this draft this class because there should be so much movement um and, and so from that perspective like you can't just pencil in a Dylan Cruz and be confident that's your top guy we're gonna have to be really on top of it so I think that'll be fun to cover and see who who's improving and, and who's not. But I think the teams would prefer if there was like a more established elite tier of prospects in this 24 class at this stage. Yeah. There's no, uh, you know, how you, like, like tank, well, you know, like tank for a cruise, but like, uh, there, there's no like one obvious player. <laughs> it was lose for cruise. Yeah. Lose, lose, for, cruise. lose for cruise. Yeah. Uh, Play badly for Adley. Right. Tank for torque. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. No, there's no, there's no good one right now. Um, what are you going to do for Nick Kurtz? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I don't it's know. Not, yeah. Not quite yeah, the same. Not quite the same. So, yeah, we'll see what happens with this class, you know. But, yeah, those are some of the players who who were good this summer. So. All right. No, the lists were the lists were really good, though. Very, very thorough. Thorough reports. Enjoyed reading about all of them. Yeah, great stuff from from Peter and Jeff. So if you need a if you need a jump start on the class, I think those would be two two good places in addition to the uh, the draft list we already have, which we'll probably need to update soon, just based on all this summer performance. There are a lot of guys who are going to be moving up and down on that, so uh, that'll be in the works over the next few weeks and months uh, too. Anything else you want to touch on today, Ben? I think we I think we hit it all. Yeah, we did. It's been two hours so far. So for those who appreciate the long podcasts, there you go. And for those who don't, well, you're probably not listening right now. So, <laughs> um, now we, so we can talk about them now. Yeah, talk about those See? guys. Yeah. <laughs> not the true fans. Yeah. Well, I don't really have anything to plug. So unless you have anything to plug, we can get out of here. 
yeah let's uh let's get going all right cool well we'll see you guys next time thanks for listening thanks to the ba subscribers and supporters we really appreciate you guys and we'll see you next time